0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to One Fantastic Rogue Beast, a marvelous mashup, the round table of six of us here from Signum. I didn't even plan all that alliteration, in which we talk about Fantastic Beasts and where to find them and Rogue One. So welcome, all of you. We're very glad to have you here. Um, I also want to let you know that we are streaming this on Twitch as well, so if that's your preferred venue, um, you can watch it over on the Twitch stream also, or instead. Right. Um, so, in a moment, I'm going to introduce all of these lovely people to you. But first of all, a couple of announcements. There are some other exciting events coming up at Signum soon. One of the most noteworthy is Tom Shippey's seminar on Tolkien's Beowulf. So, this is an awesome uh, program that you don't want to miss. It's sort of a mini course. If you, um, missed Tom Shippey's Beowulf course, or even if you took it, this is a different uh, perspective on Tolkien's translation and commentary on Beowulf with one of the leading scholars on both on both Anglo-Saxon literature and on Tolkien. So this is a three three class seminar, so it's three Thursday afternoons in January, starting on the 12th. So check out signumuniversity.org events page to find more details on that. So that's the main event coming up. I just want to let everybody know that if you like this program and are happy to get more programs like this, you could donate to Signum University. Signumuniversity.org slash fund slash donate. I'm going to try to send you all that link right now in your chat box. So hopefully you got that. Um, If that worked, very that came through all right. Um, Do we have any other announcements we want to make? Any other events coming up that I don't know about? I mean, You have spring classes starting in a week, right? Is that what you were going to say, Curtis? It is, yes. Ah. So check out our wonderful lineup of spring classes. I'm particularly excited about the research methods course, um, which shows you where my priorities are. Uh, But this is a great class in how to read, how to write, and the big ideas that people bring to literature. So you might want to check that one out. Um, Thank you, Neil, Exploring Middle Earth on Tuesdays, the new Um, a new endeavor that Professor Olson has launched. So check that out as well. A question came through, we'll be monitoring Twitch chat for questions too. I will not. Um, I don't know if any of you are set up that you can multitask with that. Um, If not, feel free to do that amongst yourselves. That would be great. Um, Let me see if I can let you view the attendees list. There you are. You should have it now, Erica. Mm -hmm. All right, well let me introduce this beautiful and brilliant panel to you. Um, In alphabetical order, by last name, we have Brenton Dickinson. Brenton is on the faculty here at Signum, he is working on a Ph.D. on the theology of C.S. Lewis's fictional worlds, and he writes the blog, A Pilgrim in Narnia. He lives in the almost fictional land of Prince Edward Island, where he teaches and consults in higher education. So thanks for being here with us tonight, Brenton. Hello. Hey, Kelly. Um, Orazi or Orazi? Orazi. Orazi, okay. Kelly is a longtime bookseller, reader, and signum student. She spends her days reading Harry Potter, pretending she has the Force, and hanging out with her dog, Lupin. Does he turn into a werewolf um, when the moon shines He's a wolf. He's just, just crazy. He
1: may as well be a wolf.
0: Okay. okay. Excellent. Uh, she is descended from a real life wand maker, but has yet to embark on the journey of making her own. So, you want to get on that soon? Kat Sass. Kat Sass recently submitted her final MA thesis for Signal University, yay, where she completed her degree Ooh. concentrating in imaginative literature. She knows a lot more about Harry Potter than Star Wars, but looks forward to discussing both movies. Look forward to that too. Emily. Emily Strand is a professor of comparative religions at Mount Carmel College of Nursing in Columbus, Ohio. Where she also serves the Catholic Diocese as a master catechist. Besides books on liturgy, she's published articles on Harry Potter, including one for the book Harry Potter for Nerds, too, is a staff writer at HogwartsProfessor.com, and has appeared on the MuggleNet Academia podcast. And you blame Amy Sturgis for your obsession with Star Wars. <laughs> Very good. Entirely. It's all her fault. And we're glad. And Curtis Went was born in the year of the Force, making him a chosen one of some kind or other, although of what type we see seen exactly. He reads most, has read most of the Star Wars legend stories before they were legends, and has happy enough people have finally seen Rogue One that he can talk about it without having to avoid spoilers. Which just uh, is a warning to all of you that uh, we will be spoiling everything this afternoon. Everything that we're going to talk about, we're just going to go ahead and spoil it all, because we want to be able to talk about things like narrative art, you know, where they go, where they fit over all the spirit of the endings. So, um, just fair warning for that. So, we thought it would be a good idea to start with some quick little plot summaries. Because we thought that some of you may have seen one of these two films but not the other. So, Kelly is going to start us out with a plot summary of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Not so much like where it fits in the world or anything. Just tell us sort of the premise and the story of this film, please.
1: Okay, so it is about New Scamander, author of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, who is a magic... magic zoologist? I think is kind of the right word for it. Um, he studies animals, magical creatures, and is on a journey to um, to study them and free some of them uh, that he has in his magical suitcase where he keeps animals and helps them and uh, he travels to America and teams up with a nomad, or a muggle, Jacob, uh, Tina, and Queenie, two brilliant um, sisters who are witches. And uh, throughout the movie, there is the uh, daunting rise of Grindelwald, the evil wizard, before Voldemort, and it all accumulates to a big, uh, dark ending... <laughs> It's
2: okay.
0: Yeah, well done, great. Anybody wanna add something into that at all before we get the summary of Rogue One? Okay. Um, Alright, so Emily, you wanna do something similar for us for Rogue One then?
3: Yes, indeed, in a totally different, uh, a totally different way. So, <clears throat> the best way to understand the premise of Rogue One is to think about A New Hope, which is the original 1977 Star Wars film. Mm. Um, and to realize that as it opens, you there the um, the rebels have just become in possession of plans for this ultimate super weapon that the Empire is building, um, and and the Empire is pursuing them across the galaxy, trying to retrieve these plans. Um, the question becomes: How did they get these plans? Where did they steal these plans from? Who stole the plans? And, and how did the rebels come uh, to, to have them, to possess them? So Rogue One answers these questions. So you meet this band of rebels um, who call themselves Rogue One for various reasons, um, led by a girl named Jin Urso. She's um, you know, 18 to 20 years old and, uh, and she is the daughter of the brilliant scientist Galen Urso, who actually um, uh, was sort of enslaved to the Empire to, to design the, the Death Star. Um, so, the plot becomes Jin's, uh... jin 's desire and her quest to find her father and to rescue him, but also then the, the she forms this rogue band to steal these death star plans and Of course, we know you know hardcore star wars fans or any star wars fans know we don 't know these characters moving forward in the franchise so in fact, even as the film opens, you know, somebody who's in the know enough can realize that these, these characters do not survive this ordeal
0: of stealing the Death Star plans.
2: Right, right. well done.
0: Um, we might come back to this in a minute after we do some other things to fit them in, but I'm fascinated by how both, um, how both films have these little material concerns like don't lose your luggage and how can you increase your home network connectivity. Right. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to those in a minute. Um, all right. Very well done. So then, the questions rise of where these fit into their worlds and into our world. Um, so, cat, where does Fantastic Beasts fit um, from our perspective? From like the other movies and the other books, where things have been published and released? Sure. So.
4: The, you know, you said within their worlds and within our world so kind of taking the primary, our world, first. Um, Fantastic Beasts, the movie, is based on uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, which is a short book that J.K. Rowling wrote in uh, uh, 2001. She published um, the Harry Potter school books. So it's, you know, copies of Harry's textbooks. So you get Fantastic Beasts and Quidditch through the ages. And they're the you know the books that he has in school and then in the marginalia you see you know his notes and you know jokes that he and Ron scribble to each other and that sort of thing. Um, and they're sort of in between Harry Potter books she wrote these and all the proceeds went to charity I think. Um, so that's sort of what it's based on at least the premise of Newt Scamander as this magizoologist although the story of the movie is not in that book in any really. Um, so uh, the movie obviously just came out this year, um, and they also published uh, Rolling Screenplay along with it, um, which I think is the first screenplay that she's written herself. Um, so, you know, you can sort of go buy that in the bookstore as well. Um, and then there's a planned series of five movies now. I think it used to be three, but now we're up to five. So that's coming down the pike. Um, and then in the secondary world, the world of the story, it uh, takes place in 1926, so 70-ish years before the events of Harry Potter, because that series mostly takes place in the 90s. Um, and so, you know, there's some characters, you know, you kind of hear about Dumbledore's out there somewhere, but you don't really, you don't ever see them. They're sort of on the periphery, um, and. Uh, it, Kelly mentioned, uh that Grindelwald plays a part, who is somebody on the periphery of the Harry Potter series as this sort of precursor to Voldemort, you know, the kind of uh, dark wizard that predated him by a certain number of years, and the impression you get in the Harry Potter books is that uh, Grindelwald really rose up uh, during the thirties and forties, and so you have this idea of it's this magical fascism that's parallel to you know, the fascist movements that kind of were in the world, between the World Wars and in the World War II period. So this, uh, this movie's sort of set uh, right at the cusp of that. You know, Grindelwald is sort of about to become a really big menace, uh, you know, just around the same time that those sorts of things are happening in, you know, the non-magical world. So that's yeah. the, kind of the context of it.
0: Good, good. Well, I'm going to ask another question on that, and then hang on, Curtis, we'll get to you for the, where Rogue One fits. But, um, Kat, or anybody, um, what sense do we get of how much Harry would have known this story? And there's a bunch of different ways we could answer that, right? Jeez. Because it's kind of, like,
5: reverse-engineered, if that's the right phrase.
2: I mean, I don't feel like...
5: Which book do you, uh, do you mean? (laughs) Because at the beginning, of course, he doesn't know anything, right? Right, like, right. Like, like, where within the Hogwarts curriculum did they read the Fantastic Beasts do we, Yeah, about? do we
0: know that? Well, isn't it? He starts
4: taking care of magical creatures in book three. Yeah. So, um, but again, I don't know that there's no narrative in Fantastic Beasts. It's a, it's a bestiary. You know, it says, like you know, mm-hmm. this is a Niffler and here's what it does and yep. here's its magical properties and here its level, here's its level of danger on a scale of like one to five or something um, and how to take yeah. care of it. So, I, I mean, it's hard to say how much you would have known about the historical context of it just because this is totally like a retcon story. <laughs> and so, right. like, yeah. it didn't exist when, I mean, Grindelwald exists, but the, all this stuff right,
0: in New and York. The other, My question was not what could Harry have known about it, because when Harry was being written, this story didn't exist, so we have to retroactively fit it. Um, Erica made the point maybe they would have learned about it in History of Magic, and Neil said Hermione probably read about it in a Magic Hermione. History book.
6: Of- but no one, no one listened in History of Magic, right? I don't think anyone learned anything minor. in History of Magic except Hermione for at least the seven-year framework. right? So. He's yeah. a bad teacher, so it I don't was... think anyone... I mean, we, we hear less about
0: what they were actually learning and studying, but we'll come back to that. We Emily, did of... you want to add something on that question? Yeah,
3: somebody from Hogwarts, Professor, I can't remember if it was Louise or Elizabeth, uh, pointed out that Harry, or whoever's making the marginal notes in, in Fantastic Beasts on uh, uh, page 14, Roman numeral 14, they circle, the title is A Brief History of Muggle Awareness of Fantastic Beasts, and they've circled brief, and they've put You Liar. liar. And so clearly, somebody, somebody knows that Newt is a liar. So that's one thing I think we have to think about moving forward. Well, at least we know Newt is a liar. So if he's, if he's not really here to, here in America to shop for, for fancy uh, puff skeins or whatever, then at least we heard it here first. You know, we heard it in this little textbook
6: first.
0: Right, right, which brings all kinds of great questions about unreliable narrators.
6: Yeah. I thought The Liar was the short part. It wasn't a short introduction.
0: Well, I I agree, (laughs) but it could be a double (laughs) entendre, high school students would say, right?
4: (laughs) Right, she could retcon it to mean more than it meant when she wrote it, you know? Exactly. So now there's a new layer to it, yeah.
0: Which is personal. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll come back to some of these questions, and Kate, I intend to come to that question soon, so thank you for asking it. Um, So, Curtis, similarly, in primary world and secondary world terms, where does Rogue One fit?
5: Yeah. Brief. So, yeah. yeah.
2: (laughs) No, Uh, not brief.
5: Well, so, it's interesting in a way, because, of course, uh, Star Wars came out 40 years ago now, the original. When I say Star Wars, of course, I mean A New Hope. But it was only known as Star Wars when it first came out um so in one sense it's it's literally the biggest gap you can have between two consecutive stories in that universe, and they are literally consecutive because, as it turns out, where Rogue One ends is pretty much like minutes from where you know a new hope uh, picks up um, Actually, and as Emily yeah. Yeah, as Emily points out, like you basically get like it's interesting cuz like the the scroll up in A New Hope uh almost becomes like a you know previously seen on Star Wars. Like this is what happened. Here's a little recap. <laughs> of course, you know, they didn't have that recap in 1977. We only get it now. Um mm-hmm. so that's the the sort of primary world story. Of course, you know, there were there were other movies, but they were all in sort of um, what I call this the Skywalker saga right they're all about sort of the Skywalker family and 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 their story and this is the first time that we get a movie that doesn't follow that uh, family story um, now when you turn to star wars media of course there's a lot of it out there and um, much of it has been sort of swept away into um, what's now referred to as legend story uh... but just sticking with the canonical stuff um, just in the last few years uh, Lucasfilm under Disney's aegis has been um, producing a lot of material that actually occurs uh, between the last film chronologically, which would be uh, Revenge of the Sith um, and now Rogue One. Um, And within that, um, sort of the first novel actually of this sort of new setup um, was A New Dawn by John Jackson Miller, um, which we looked at in uh, Dr. Surches' class. and that sets up the characters uh, for the uh, CGI show uh, Star Wars Rebels, uh, which I really have enjoyed actually and and um, the third season returns tomorrow, I believe so uh, looking forward to that but um, you know without getting into details that that story um, really talks a lot of you know shows a lot of the story behind the buildup of the Re- rebel movement and um, you know how it how it gets to this point of you know where people actually start believing like, oh hey, maybe maybe we can fight this big empire that's just seems vast and overbearing and and all of that so um, Rogue one kind of fits in there um, in, in the in the scroll up to um, the original star Wars um, you know it says that the rebellion has just won its first major victory and uh, you know, this is it. Rogue one is that victory. Um and, and just one other little piece is there's actually a book um that's sort of the prologue to the prologue, if you will, of um it, it called Catalyst that tells the story of Jinn's parents and sort of um as Emily alluded to, you know, how Galen sort of becomes enslaved and and uh is forced to work on uh the power of the Death Star um and all of that. So So these worlds
0: are continuing to expand, and they're expandable. I mean, I remember when I read Fantastic Beasts that I had this sort of um, little sense of a story in the back of my head, that even though it's written like an encyclopedia or, as Kat said, more properly a bestiary, you're getting all these hints like, well, where did he did he catch all of these, you know, how did he study them, you know, is he a National Geographic photographer in the magical world, you know, and then similarly with Rogue One, I really wanted to know the backstory of Jin's parents, so we have the expanded universe aspects of both of these. Um, so Brenton, why don't you jump off of that then, more kind of theoretical stuff about the making of secondary worlds, and yeah, take us where you want to with that
6: yeah I actually might not go too far. I kind of think that's the way the discussion's gonna go anyway based on the introductions that we've heard right i think I think each of the panelists here are pretty much interested in not just the story as narrative but the story that either it either intersects with our world sort of culturally or it intersects with other worlds um but but maybe I'll just say one thing so uh remember, does anybody watch the the old uh, the old trailers for the original Star Wars series? right? So if you go to the New Hope trailer, it's amazing. It starts off with like a, a, it's like a, a rolling epic a billion years in the making. It's this, it's this huge... Oh, I
0: think we just lost your sound.
5: Anybody else? It it looked really intriguing, what you were saying, but we couldn't hear (laughs) it. (laughs)
0: Yeah, no, we lost you in the middle of that. Oh, no. Try it again now, Brentus. Yeah, there you are.
6: Are we back here? Yeah. We're back. Do you have audio? Okay, sorry about that. Yeah, I was just doing sound effects, so, and they were awesome, but I'm not going (laughs) to listen. We
0: missed your Darth Vader breathing and your your sound.
6: So the, uh, um, it, there was actually dramatic tension. Uh, the, so the original trailer had this, this idea of this epic, this huge space saga that was the size was the issue. Length of time was the issue. It was this huge world. And, and so I've been just kind of thinking about that and thinking about what happened with the, Harry, the new Harry Potter world movie. I don't know what to call it, except the Harry Potter world, I guess. And, and so what we have, I think, with Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is, is this response to fan desire for a, a bigger world, is to fill out and, and to make the Harry Potter universe bigger. And, and to kind of... Um, I was kind of disappointed with the Fantastic Beasts book, as I read it, but but now to see some of those creatures come to life and to kind of play with the different, the, the, the strength of, of, of that world. And and the, the Harry Potter books are very British oriented. It's very much on the Isles with a little bit of Europe, right? And then to kind of have that kind of move out, what's the wizarding community like globally, which is what the Fantastic Beasts book does. It actually pops us out into the different continents. So we get a, a world that gets bigger, right, with the Fantastic Beast movie. I think though with the um with rogue one and i and i have a lot of good to say with it so it's not a negative thing i actually think we're seeing the the star wars universe kind of get smaller as we add as we add to it's actually narrowing in on these these spaces i thought uh actually both introductions are great but curtis the roll-up thing right to 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 insert like so we've got we've got an insertion of you know a whole movie a two-hour movie that's inserted into just a couple of words within the first you know sc- yellow scroll on the screen and and it actually like the 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 movement between the different galaxies actually kind of gets quicker uh, you know everything's happening some you know immediately uh, we have we have uh, t- things that are hopping on top of one another, including the force awakens insertion and so so these two kind of insertions, the fantastic Beasts insertion and the uh rogue one insertion, they kind of move pretty well into those worlds, but I think they do opposite thing. One makes the world bigger and I think one makes that world smaller. So I think that's what I would start with just as a as an introduction. I think we'll end up talking about kind of how these worlds come about and what those things mean anyway. So
0: yeah. Erica adds to that that we're introduced to five or so planets in about five minutes.
2: That's right. Bam, 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 bam. Kind of
0: like double clicking, right? So we had the original movies, and then we sort of double click on just one little tiny moment or one little tray. and we look at that in its own window, so to speak. But they were at least they were
3: labeled.
6: They're labeled, yeah. Unlike usually, they're not. Uh, But I mean, that's that's one one thing too. Is is in. in those awful first three movies what we got when we went to a new world is we saw the world and then we saw these huge expansive cities and then we kind of narrowed in now in this world we come and we're immediately on a planet and we're immediately on a base or a village or or the a little tiny city it's there's even a narrowing in the visual reality we don't see any of those maps that pull out the galaxies right that we see in all the other films and so i think there's there is a a smallening of this of these worlds that I think is I think is actually I think to to its credit in this case. Um, and I don't says, know how hey, much, now,
0: there's some good stuff in the prequels. Oh well, yeah, no
3: prequel hating, no prequel haters.
6: There was there sure was. Sure? There was lots of good stuff in the prequels, but I have to tell you, my relief in Rogue One was kind of, my, kind of washed over me watching the film. I was just relieved. And
0: I think there might be a genre reason for that, too, as well as sort of other technical storytelling and cinematographic reasons. We'll get to that. Um, okay, so here's a question. I'll ask about Fantastic Beasts first. Suppose there are going to be five Fantastic Beast movies, right? When they're all made, in what order do I read all the books, and in what order do I watch all the movies? Good question.
6: Yeah.
0: Should I? In what order do you?
1: Why would your book reading change?
0: Mm. Do I stop and read Fantastic Beasts when I'm in the middle of book three of Harry Potter when they would have read it? Do I read it first before I start the seven books?
1: You know, it might be fun to read first, just, well, at least maybe after book one, maybe? Um, because what it does, the book at least, is just as you said, is just a listing and about the magical creatures in the world, um, yeah. and that might have been fun to have when you're reading the series for the very first time or just again and again, um, because those creatures come up and it'd be fun to kind of know their backstory and a little bit more about them than just what you learn in. Um, in the Harry Potter books, because we're not, we don't get to go to magical care of magical creatures, and I'm not bitter about that at all, uh, <laughs> but, um, but so I mean, this kind of is our introduction to that, so it, it might be kind of fun after book one, but I don't think it changes the game that much, and I don't think it changes the game in, in how you watch the films either, um, because I, I just see them as, as wholly separate, and it's Part of that's because it's a whole different villain, and Voldemort, I think, was influenced by Grindelwald and po- probably could not have done what he did without knowing that someone came before him and did those things, which those things I don't know yet because we haven't seen all five films, but, um, but I, I see them, to me, as, as separate. I don't know if the same goes for you guys.
0: Okay, and um, Erica is also asking along those lines Do we know what the five films are going to be about? Is there a continuing storyline with Newt Scamander? Um, and I have another question while you're all pondering that. Well, so what about the screenplay? Like, should I read the screenplay first because it's the backstory and then read the Harry Potter series?
1: There is You should thing how pretty it is. There
2: you so, go. So,
3: Kelly, it
2: is pretty.
3: answer me this, though. Is there any, because I've heard that there isn't anything in the screenplay that you don't learn from a close watch of the film. I mean, yeah. maybe some um, some clarification on the end and Credence's fate, that's possibly what it gives you if you miss that in the film, because that's very subtle, the fact that Credence actually survives and escapes out of the subway. That's a little bit more clear in the... In the but unlike novelizations of, of the Star Wars films, you know, where you do actually get Almost like deleted scenes or additional content, additional backstory. You know, I didn't even end up buying the screenplay for Fantastic Beasts because I just, you know, first of all, I don't think I should have to read a screenplay to be able to understand a film, and secondly, um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I just I heard that there was nothing additional to it. could Kelly, would you agree with that or would you disagree?
1: Um, I am a little bit more than halfway through reading it. Um, and I wasn't sure if I was going to buy it either, but mostly just because it's very, very pretty and I like as books, pretty. and even inside, it's got, like, you know, they did it well. Um, oh, okay. the, the the added bits is, are the um the stage directions, right? Um, mm-hmm. What Jacob might be thinking, what Newt is thinking before he speaks, the kind of directions towards the actors, um, which, and I never read screenplays, so I don't know, I mean, all screenplays have this, right? <laughs> but... um. But, uh, but that is what I found most interesting. Um, descriptions even of um, like Queenie, like she's described as uh, the most beautiful witch to ever. Uh, what was it? She's described in this. It just. Oh, here we go. Blonde Queenie, the most beautiful girl ever to don witch's robes. You know, it's just that's kind of fun. Um, and that sort of difference I really like. Um, I on she was a Jin's similar style. note, I'm reading Rogue One too. And there's not a ton of I don't know if you guys have read the novelization of it um, maybe cut um, no. but there's not too many um, scenes that are like blowing my mind of, of oh my gosh this is different and I didn't get this but um but but there's some cool characterization characters like you get some inside characters' minds things just like you do in the screenplay is well, fantastic piece if I can jump in I think what's a bit more interesting than
0: like do we get extra material or whatever? is the matter of a a reader's, a viewer's, first introduction to the world. And John Stanifer made the comment, it's the Narnia debate over again. Well, that's why I asked it, John. Um, (laughs) Because the question in Narnia is, what is the best introduction to the tone, to the kappa element, right, to the um, Lewis and Michael Ward term, the Galati of this world, right? And would you all agree that probably reading the screenplay or reading Fantastic Beast itself is not what we want. I mean we want to be under the staircase, we want to be getting our letter, we want to be invited into Hogwarts, yes? Yeah,
4: can I, well, I was gonna say the same thing that like, I, I mean, it's, I think sometimes it's fun to do the thought experiment of I'm gonna read everything in internal chronological order just for the heck of it, like to do, but I would, like, that's a fun thing once you're familiar with something, and you want right. to see, all right, if I rearrange the pieces, what new insights do I get by doing that? But in general, I kind of feel like the order in which it was published, produced, whatever, is, like, you know, not the official version. It's nothing that serious, but, like, the best form of presentation, whether it's, you know, the Narnia Chronicles, or, like, I would say... You know, putting uh, you know the Potter films and books in the order in which they came out is probably the most just because like even if you find out later information that's backstory, it's still not you're not following a train of thought of how it was conceived. And I feel like going in the order that it came is just more.
0: I don't know. It has more of a flow to it. Well, for the, for the sake of pushing us along, because there are lots of other topics we want to cover, what about Star Wars? What order should we watch all of those in? Um, Animal... Yeah, I mean, I... While, while you're thinking, Hans sent in his order, Rogue One and A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Revenge of the Sith, Return of the Jedi, and The Force Awakens is my order.
5: <laughs> so leaving out the prequels altogether? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> prequels um, do not I, I, exist. And, and I'm not I'm not saying that's a bad idea. Uh, but I am I actually I actually think, yeah, this might be the first time where I would agree with watching a newer movie before. So sort of I think generally I agree with Kat where you know watching or reading things in sort of the order they're produced is a good way to approach it because I, I feel like you're always gonna have those references in the later produced movies um so and i think both in both fantastic beasts and in rogue one you get that so in rogue one right you have like um k2 getting ready to say i have a bad feeling about this and then getting cut off and that's that's only right sorry spoilers guys um but that's only funny because you know that they say that in every other movie and you wouldn't get that if your first movie was rogue one now you know Hopefully, if you watch Rogue One and then all the others, and then you go back and you say, oh, uh, okay, now I get it. But I don't know. I feel like you lose a little something that way. But I feel, for Rogue One specifically, I feel like it's a good enough movie. I don't think it's a standalone movie. And and a lot of, like, press has called it that. And uh, Tom Hillman and I were going back and forth on Twitter today about what to call Rogue One um, as far as, like... Assertion. Uh, you know, is it a prequel? Is it a, you know prologue is what Dr. Surgis suggested, Uh, you know, is it a standalone movie, is it an anthology movie? I, I mean, it's kind of all of those things, but none of them on its own, but I feel like it does tell a good enough story that it can be the starting point to the Star Wars series, which is the only time I've ever felt that way about a movie that wasn't A New Hope. <laughs> mm-hmm. I want to give our
0: audience a chance to put in their comments, and then I'll call on you, Emily. Um, Casey says, watch 4, 5, 6, oops, your comment just jumped, Four, five, six, seven. 7, Rogue One, and don't watch 1, 2, and 3. <laughs> Kelly says, nope, watch them in release order, then in-universe chronological, including Clone Wars and Rebels and about 500 books. <laughs> um, and uh, we do have some people saying the prequels are great. And other people saying Ooh. the prequels do not exist. So Emily, what were you going to say?
3: Well, I mean, I you know I agree with release order um, about this, and and so I'm kind of you know I'm a I'm a book nerd. I'm not really a film person. I blame Amy Sturgis for all this. My my. You know, low-grade obsession is all her fault. Um, But but in terms of... There's
5: lots of books, so, too.
3: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. I know. So it sustained my my obsession. Um, So I come to movies not as an expert. I come to movies as just an appreciator and a viewer. And so... And Star Wars. And I didn't have any baggage when I first watched Star Wars. But I would have watched... First of all, if I would have watched the prequels first... I mean, as much as I love the prequels, I probably wouldn't have kept watching. Um, But... Because I watched them in in the release order, you know, starting with A New Hope, and going through, and then back, and then forward, and then back again, um, you know, with the advances in technology in terms of the filmmaking, I think if I would have watched uh, um, Rogue One before I watched A New Hope, A New Hope would have looked like an old-fashioned movie to me, and and that's not. I mean, it kind of is an old-fashioned movie at this point. And so I don't think that's a good idea for viewers. I think I think y- you know you need to to move forward as the the films progress. You know, both in our history, um, more in our history than in the Star Wars history, and just appreciate it in the, the kind of hodgepodge way it kind of shakes out when you do that.
0: Yeah, um, let's let's get, let's go in on this, or maybe I should say double click on this. Though we were talking earlier, let's talk. One changes the way we watch Episode Four now. Right? I mean, I would say it certainly adds deeper poignancy, and they did that with the overlap scenes at the end of Rogue One. They made us watch those scenes differently now,
5: right? Yeah. What else else does it do? Curtis? Well, so starting there, so for me the first time I saw Rogue One, um, to see uh, that scene where you have um, Darth Vader sort of storming through uh, the ship uh, the rebel ship and just like cutting down left and right throwing rebels against the wall and all, and and you know like three steps ahead of him is you know the the guy running with the disk and then like handing it to the next guy running with the disk right before he gets cut down and then handing and then like passing it through the door that won't open all the way for me that to jump to go from there and then right to the beginning of a new hope where you have you know, those rebels sitting there in the hallway as, like, the smoke comes through and, like, you hear the sounds of, um, you know, Vader and the stormtroopers coming into the ship, it just makes it that much more darker for me. And I'll be honest, so (laughs) to to bring in some uh, prequel hate here, like, seeing um, seeing Darth Vader go through and just sort of cutting down these nameless rebels who I don't really have a reason to care about was way more effective for me than, like, the scene where you have Anakin in Revenge of the Sith uh, going into the Jedi Temple and there's a bunch of kids there, and you know that he kills them, you don't see it. But, like, just from a, a an acting... I know, I'm a terrible person, and you can hate me for, like, thinking that that's, you know, not effective or whatever. But it just... I don't know. It's the acting, it's the it's the tone, it's, it's all of the above that, for me, just makes that a much more a much darker and, and I think realistic idea of what like a rebellion actually is um, and I think that that's what I like a lot about Rogue One in general is that it just it gives you that darker side. I know, I know we've got questions about some of those darker things in the movie itself as well, but um, I would leave it there and I'll let someone else talk.
0: Yeah, we do. We have some comments and questions about that. Um, but I also, anyone want to respond immediately to what Curtis said? Emily, you looked like maybe you wanted to respond to that.
3: Oh, no, no. I mean, I think I agree. I think I agree with all that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I'll give it a thumbs up.
0: Erica agrees with you. Um, Hans agrees with you. Mark says, I watched 4 right after Rogue One, um, and it was very enlightening to watch it that way. And Tony says, I definitely think it changes the way we see the destruction of the Death Star. Instead of being a dumb mistake, it's a sabotage plot. Sabotage plot from the beginning. Yeah, so that deepens that aspect of it more, doesn't it? Um, Now, what about the, the ending of Rogue One? So this is our major, major spoiler time, so if you haven't um, seen it, you might want to switch off your audio for a couple minutes. Um, so let's talk about the ending of Rogue One in some detail and discuss whether it is a tragedy, and maybe each of you can share some definitions of tragedy, like what's a classical tragedy and various other kinds of tra- tragedy you've come across, and, and does it fit? Um, Brenton, you want to come in on that?
6: Sure, sure. I mean, I'll just do the, 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 the most sort of lame approach, is imagining, you know, comedy as a, a U-shape and, and tragedy as just a downward slope. If we just use that in that kind of Aristotle poetics kind of way, it's a comedy, right? Because mm-hmm. it has to, it loops back into the world, right? So so if when that chip gets into the right hands, into Carrie Fisher robotic visual image hands, right? That that moment there is actually the, the complete... The complete loop up, so it's now a U shape instead of a slide down. I mean, there's a lot of courage and in, and in, in it, it's intriguing what they did in the film, um, and kind of keeps a lot of problems from emerging. Right in in conflicts of of worlds that are inserted, the characters that just disappear forever for no reason. Well, now there's a reason. So I think so so that's I think it's a comedy.
4: Okay. I, 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 w- I was thinking the same thing. I mean, I don't know that... Uh, I hadn't used the word comedy in my head, but I thought, you know, the, the kind of reversal of fortune there of the characters go on an upward trend, even though it ends in death. It You know, they start out without purposed without fulfillment, without you know direction or yeah. anything, and there's a kind of this the spirit at the end is one of triumph for them, even if and so both on a it's it's an upward trend both for the group that okay we've now you know rescued these plans and we're escaping with them, but also for the individual characters they both start out I think at a higher place than where they or they end higher than they begin.
5: Good. And, and the characters don't fail because of a tragic flaw. They succeed right. in spite of their tragic flaws. And I think that's, I, I mean, I don't have any specific definition of tragic, you know, tragedy or whatever in mind. But, but I think that, you know, looking at it as, th- this isn't a failure of human uh, capacity. It, it's a It's a success. It's, you know, meant to be that, you know, they did it. They made it. Yes, they died in the end, but it was a sacrifice. It wasn't attempting to do something that they failed at.
2: Right. Yeah. Uh, so I think
0: this...
3: that Go ahead, Emily, and
5: then I'll jump I, in with something. I was
3: I was just going to agree with Curtis and, and say, you know, this they didn't fail. This is their lives are what the task required. And uh, uh and it's a new it's a new kind of sacrifice. You know, Cassian has sacrificed, you know, his humanity along the way in his service of the rebellion. And that this has made him a deeply unhappy person. But in in, you know, kind of feeding off of of Jin's sense of hope, you know, he comes to realize, uh, he kind of purifies his sacrifice and realizes that what, what's really needed is his own life. And this is a very hopeful, a very hopeful thing. I mean, you know, that scene with them on the beach, you know, kind of embracing each other on the beach, it looks like a sunrise, what's coming for them. Mm-hmm. And really the sun is rising on a new day for, for, the, for the rebels, and, and this is what Cassian wants. Um, so, so yeah, I'll agree. I don't, I don't think I don't. I'm not an expert on what is tragedy and what's not, but uh, I would definitely agree that that this is not it.
2: Right.
0: A lot of our uh, listeners, viewers here have been have been. Agreeing. Tony says, "Jin and Cassie at the end on the beach remind me of Frodo and Sam on the slopes of Mount Doom, except yeah. that in this case they are not miraculously rescued." Yeah. And awesome. Jacob says it's something that needed to happen. It was a suicide mission but he also mentions the term catastrophe." Let's come back to that in a second see if we think it was a eucatastrophe. Um, Mark says anything that ends with hope is a classic comedy and Hans points out that Jin's message of hope is actually Cassian's message as well. Yeah. Um, so, Classical definition of tragedy, Aristotle's definition was that it brought about a catharsis or a release in the spectators by arousing sensations of pity and fear and then purging them of those emotions. Does that happen? I mean, did you have pity and fear aroused in you in watching Rogue One and then were those cleansed or purged?
6: I was sad well, when K2 died. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually meant that. Like, I, for me I, thought was that was,
5: I thought that was but, a bit more emotional than. And, it, and yeah. honestly, it was, it was that moment, like the second time he gets shot or whatever, and you're like, oh, he's not going to make it, and, no. and actually, maybe some of them aren't going to make it. Now, I, first time through, I didn't realize they were all not going to make it, but right. um, yeah, no, I, I agree. Like, at that moment, you're like, oh, wow, that's that's different, because you don't, like, how many times do we see, like, C-3PO throughout the series yeah. losing various parts of himself, and he never dies. He always comes back, right? That's like, like <laughs> put together, and, yeah, um, <laughs> Right, like half of Empire Strikes Back, he's in pieces, in a box. You know, dismembered. Yeah, so you don't yeah, actually okay, ever Hans, expect and,
0: it. Hans and Erica have been saying sort of similar complementary things here that I want to push out a little bit. Hans says he thinks it's okay that the Rogue One team died because to me they didn't feel like they had more development to give. There's always room for development, but they all accomplished their arcs in a satisfying way, except K2. But he didn't have an arc except to be hilarious and awesome at the same time. Um, but Erica said that she thought one of the flaws in the film was that she had a hard time caring about any of them. So I agree with that, Erica, and I'd be interested to hear other people's perspectives. I had a very hard time connecting with the characters, and the film spent so long giving us little clips of many, many different places and people and things, and was honestly just completely confusing couldn't understand it all until about half an hour in um... and so that took away from the power of the ending to me somebody has can some I background, was... let me figure out who that is yeah. given us some some fuzzy noises there, no well, it's okay now I don't know who it was, so what do we think?
1: Uh, can I disagree I with say, the... I can't. oh go ahead Kelly No you That's go like ahead Kelly. <laughs> I was going to say, I thought it was very character-driven. I don't know if you were thinking the same thing, Emily. Um, but for me, I cared so much. Each The fact that each character got their own moment of death. I mean, how could you not, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Chiru? Chiru, mm-hmm.
2: um, root, yeah.
1: How could you not care about him? Oh, my goodness. I mean, that, that death scene? Really? Oh, my gosh. Oh, Nothing. He, I thought he was great. And I thought the fact that you care that K2 died, he's a machine. And I know that we, in I the Star care. Wars, of Hear so much about R two and I mean, even BB eight now is everyone's favorite so that's nothing new but but to care about the death of a machine is brilliant and I thought they did that really well and for personally I thought I I saw the arc in each character um, I thought I, I was very sad with when um Bodhi died um, he was just I, I had almost no uh, feelings about him the whole movie until maybe like the last uh. 20, 30 minutes or something like that of this theme, but I was really starting to like him, and then he died. Um, but each died for their purpose, and I thought that that was done brilliantly.
5: Mm. Okay. So, so for I, I read I read Catalyst before I saw the movie, um, so I knew Jin's parents' backstory. Um, so I, that that helped me one to care more about them, who we only see, like, right at the beginning, and then we see Galen a little bit later. Um, I actually felt that um, uh, Jin's mother's character in the movie was not quite as in sync with the book. Um, But as far as the, the character, the other characters in the movie, I don't, I mean, I think I liked more the promise of what they were. Like I, I agree that like maybe there's not the most character development in this movie and it's an ensemble film and I, I kind of I kind of think of it the way other people must feel about watching Serenity but not having seen Firefly. Um oh, man. you know like there's all these people and you don't necessarily understand all of the ways that they're interacting together, but you know, you just kind of go with it. <laughs>
0: I've seen all of Firefly, but not Serenity, so... Oh, okay. Just in
2: case. Well, I'm yeah, really, no,
5: I didn't, I didn't really give any spoilers there, just, just, just as far as... Because going into Serenity, if you haven't seen Firefly, you don't know how they interact with each other. Mm-hmm. And and I got a bit of what I think that must feel like here in in Rogue One, but but I do think with characters like Chirrut and Maze and, and Bodhi, like, you get the idea that but I, I don't know. I, I guess I got the idea that there's there's more to them despite the fact that we don't understand all of their story now. And I guess I sort of also have, have faith in, in Lucasfilm and Disney and, and The Force or whatever that we will get those backstories at some point. So I'm kind of waiting for that. Like, I would love to see a backstory of Sharut and I would really love, and I know there's been people calling for it, to see um, him meet, like, Kanan on Star Wars Rebels, who... Um, during the course of the series has become blind, and is learning to use the Force as a blind person, and so there's some nice little parallels there that would be really interesting to see those two characters acting together. But um, that, that for me, I guess, that, that idea of the promise of the characters, more than maybe the actual development that we see in the story, is what I sort okay. of latched on to.
2: Yeah.
5: Uh, Mark loves your Firefly
0: and Serenity example, and Tom is still suffering residual Serenity grief. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, while we're on that theme, I think I'll do one more um, Rogue One question, then we need to come back to Fantastic Beast. But, Emily, you want to make a comment before I do that?
3: Well, I just wanted to come to K2's defense in terms of his uh, character arc. I think he is on a journey. I think, you know, when we first meet him, he, he floors Jin. you know, absolutely floors her to the, to the ground, taking absolutely none of her crap. And then, you know, when they're on Jeddah and Jin is trying to sort of take a leading role, which K2 seems to resent a little bit, you know, she uh she tells him to wait on the ship and hand hands him her bag, which he promptly drops, you know, <laughs> cuz he's not going to serve her. He is not that type of droid. He is not going to serve this girl. Who is this girl? He thinks that she's a bad idea, you know. And so and then you know but he joins the he joins the group. The, he joins the rogue group, you know, and he says Cassian's making him. But I don't think that's really the case, you know. And by the end, he's just absolutely bending over backward, doing gross things to other droids in order to serve these yeah. guys. And uh, you know, and he's he gives his life setting them up. To do the task at hand, not him. He's in a totally other part, but he sets them up to do the task. So I do, I do actually think he has quite an arc, and which is crazy for a droid, you know. Uh, but but only in Star Wars, I guess.
0: He served a really important purpose, I think, in um, the whole the whole universe uh, from an artistic point of view, which was, for me anyway, he redeemed the the droids and the slightly comic characters, right? I and mean, he did so much to redeem. Or to heal the wounds of Jar Jar Binks, right? And he did so. He was, he was better than C-3PO. as I thought as far as like a balance of humor without being just ridiculous and childish. Um, so I thought he served an important role there. Um, okay. So one final question right now from me about Rogue One, and then we'll see where we go, which is relating to this film as a war movie which I can't see right now who brought that up. Was that Neil, maybe? Is it a war movie? And then um, Mark sent me a comment ahead of time that we really need to discuss Cassian's feet, which I thought was one of the most important moments. And um, I had a concern about this film myself. For the first time in all the Star Wars movies, I didn't identify with the Rebels as much. And it was sometimes because of terminology or tactics, or certain visuals. There were some moments in the film that I found very, very disturbing. Um, The the sniper with the robes and the turban up on the bridge in the sandy planet. The child that Jin rescues from the crossfire. And then the moment when all the bombs go off timed, synchronized along the beach. Um, For the first time, I was like, oh, rebels. And I thought, ISIS. And I thought, these aren't rebels, these are terrorists. And then we have Cassian's speech. Some of us, most of us, we've all done terrible things on behalf of the Rebellion. Spies, saboteurs, assassins, everything I did, I did for the Rebellion. And every time I walked away from something I wanted to forget, I told myself it was for a cause I believed in, a cause that was worth it. Without that, we're lost. Everything we've done would have been for nothing. I couldn't face myself if I gave up now. None of us could have. So, what's... What's going on here? What is this film doing about war and about rebellion and about terrorism?
6: Can I, sir? Yeah, so I, th- I think I think the film's actually strong at kind of um, showing the complexity of of this. I mean, wh- okay, why don't we, you know, it's it's 1914. We'll just go and we'll just fight. We'll just fight the Germans or we'll just go fight the English or whatever. And it's four years of this inch by inch bloody battle. It's actually it's roguish, right? And then you've got uh, World War Two, and then and throughout the throughout the century, we discover that actually, America, the greatest civilization on earth with the biggest firepower ever, can't win small skirmishes in the Middle East. And when you and then when you look at history again that way, actually. Never has the West been able to win small skirmishes in the Middle East. actually it's always problematic and so I think I think what the film does is actually show the, the the inch by inch nature of these things in in a really effective in effective way but it's also there's also the the i mean the point that that the kinds of rebels you get you know in in one area are not the kinds that you get so we got rebels and then we have this outer circle of rebels of the rebels who are yeah, and so, and that's one of the complexities of World War II, is who do you cooperate with to to win this war? And so I think there's that dynamic, so I think you actually have different levels of human humanity in fa- in fighting the war, and then you also have the film showing the difficulties of war in general, so, or at least in our age. Yeah, so
0: Erica, yeah. I thought the same thing. Erica says that is how terrorists see themselves. It's all about your perspective. To ISIS, we but are the enemy, whatever is necessary to destroy if, us.
6: If the terrorists win, I mean, I don't know. We can do this now in the age of of media, but historically, if the terrorists win, they're what we call actually the next government, right, or the next leadership. Mm
2: -hmm.
6: So, so yeah, we'll see what what happens. I mean, and uh, a friend of mine, my brother-in-law is a a genius on this kind of stuff, and he he actually hoped that seven, eight, nine would have actually been the fall of the rebels morally, so they actually win and then they collapse as 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 leaders. They become the new empire. So mm-hmm. he sort of predicted, in what happens a bit in Rogue One. But anyway, I think Curtis is chomping at the bit.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I have a little bit. So there's there's a few things. Um, you mentioned the Middle East stuff too, but you know it's very interesting. Um, which I agree with everything you said there. But it's very interesting to think back to when George Lucas was writing A New Hope, because at that time in the '70s, you're talking not about Middle East, you're talking about Vietnam, and his yeah. ideas about you know, the conflicts in Vietnam and and the things going on there are very much what inspired at least some of the earlier drafts, and then, you know, obviously we know how that all worked itself out. But I feel like one of the things I like about Rogue One is that it does get into that grittier, more realistic idea of what a rebellion might actually look like, and probably brings us closer to that original idea that Lucas even had about this sort of conflict. of a rebellion. I also want to point out, like, uh, so, we are talking about two different sets of rebels, and and you know, Saw Gerrera uh, on the desert planet there, Jedha. Um, there's actually a, a backstory there from the Clone Wars uh, CGI series, where he started out, him and his sister, were um, rebelling against the Separatist army on whatever planet there, and Obi-Wan and Anakin and Uh, Ahsoka, Tano go to their planet and they actually train them. So there's, there's a, there's sort of a further thing going on here when when you think about like, even like now where like you know you have the US, oh we're not participating, we're just like training or helping out, you know, Mm -hmm. we're helping so-and-so, you know, learn how to keep their own peace and that kind of thing. You know, and then that turns into this really extreme, you know, or whatever um, sort of thing, like happened with Bin Laden, you know, or other people who we've perhaps trained and have turned into sort of these uh, fundamentalists, you know, really scary uh, uh, rebels, terrorists, whatever you call them. Um, And so I think there's a, a really interesting pulling him into, which I believe he's the first character that they pulled from an animated show you know, canonical show still, but animated show, into one of the movies. And I find his story really interesting if you go back and sort of read through. And he appears in Catalyst and stuff as well. Um, you know, just to sort of find out how he gets to that point of where he's okay with these way more extreme measures. Um, but then you look at someone like Cassian, who's perfectly fine with blowing up one of the people who are ostensibly on his own team, right? Like, one of the more extremist rebels, or uh, shooting him down or whatever he does, and then, like, he falls and blows up more people to save Jin. but, like, he has no qualms about shooting one of his own guys, right? And that's, yeah. I don't know, that's, that is is disturbing. Like, that's you know, when he the first time I saw it, I couldn't tell if when he falls and, like, there's, like, a stall that blows up. I wasn't sure if there were more extremist rebels in that stall, or if it was, like, just you know, like the little girl, like could have just been regular people who happen to be in that plaza or whatever. It's it happens so fast you can't really see one way or the other. Yeah. Oh,
0: good good points. Thank you, Curtis. Hans was saying something similar here. There are three elements the rebellion. There's the alliance, the military, and extremists. And Hans goes into some more details there. But um, there are—they're not all aligned. There are. Erica says there's conflict amongst the various rebel groups, and Mark says you're exactly right. It shows what a rebellion looks like. It's not excusing what the rebels did, just showing it through their eyes. So, um, someone was—it must have been Cat in your introduction to Fantastic Beasts—pointed out that there were also some historical parallels there as well. Um, with Grindelwald's rise in the 40s. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, Kat, to get us back into the Fantastic Beasts mode? And then I have a specific question about
4: Beasts. Sure. I mean, I didn't really prepare anything, so uh, I'll try to think of what else to say that I haven't said. But, um, yeah, it kind of, if my memory serves, um, in Deathly Hallows, mostly, is where you get sort of the, the Grindelwald backstory as, you know, mm-hmm. Harry delves into Dumbledore's history and, you know, there's the biography of Dumbledore that's published that gives him all this information that, you know, he didn't have. And kind of similar to what you guys were saying, it sort of complicates the good guys in the story of, um, oh, suddenly fascism is in Dumbledore's background. and is something that he flirted with, of this notion um, of when he and Grindelwald were, uh, were young and sort of a bit full of themselves and a bit full of each other got this notion that, you know, as this sort of, you know, superior, you know, race of beings with this magical ability, it's, we have this sort of, I don't know, magical person's burden to take care of the world, and you know, that easily turns into, you know, ruling the world and ruling, you know, muggles. And, uh, you know, they're ideas get more and more sort of extreme, and their behavior gets more and more dangerous, until the point that, you know, Dumbledore at least gets a wake-up call to step back and rethink things. Um, and Grindelwald continues along you know this path. Um, and so I don't feel like we get a lot of details of the actual conflict. Um, you know, there's some that, you know, you kind of mostly just get what's relevant to Harry's story. So, you know, things like The symbolism of the Deathly Hallows, you know, uh, you know, the stone and the wand and the cloak and kind of what that meant uh, to that movement as this sort of symbol of, you know, their all-powerful status, Um, you know, which for parallels, you know, nicely kind of parallels the swastika because it starts, you you know, the triangle with the circle and the wand in the middle Predates its connection to this sort of horrific movement. It has a sort of, um, you know, very intense symbolism for the magical people as something good, you know, as sort of the symbol of the story. And it becomes sort of corrupted and, you know, uh, a symbol of the evil of that, you know, terrorist organization, really, um, which is sort of the evolution of the swastika, which is thousands of years old. Um, but today we can only look at it and see, you know, Hitler and the Nazis and everything. Um, so that's kind of, I think, what she's playing with, although I guess it's more in the movies that are going to come out where we'll get the detail of, I guess, Grindelwald's actual
0: story and
4: his rise and fall from power and everything.
0: Yeah. Uh, we've got some people making comparisons uh, to Gandalf and his temptation with the ring. Jacob points out that's why Dumbledore didn't want the minister's job, because it was too much power. And Tony says it reminds him of a quote from Batman versus Superman. That's how it begins. The rage, the feeling of powerlessness turns rage. into men. cool. Yeah. Um, Chris Swank is asking a question that... Uh, Kelly, I don't know if you want this one. She thought that the magical Congress of the United States was not a very nice government. What did you think about the way the magical Congress was depicted?
1: Shoot, I haven't I haven't done a lot of um, the Pottermore stuff, so I don't know the the American government, the magical American government, and all of that. Um, it's a little bit beyond me because my interest level in it is not too high. Um, okay, but, <laughs> but I, thought it, I thought I thought. Felt a little flat, although the feelings I did get it get from watching Fantastic Beasts um, and Where to Find Them, is that it it was sort of corrupted in a, in a way, and I, I can't pinpoint um anything why any reason why, um, but it didn't feel and of course the, the Ministry of Magic is is corrupted easily in uh, throughout the Harry Potter films, so this is not something new and it's it's not surprising, um, and it is a different time. Um, and it is a different way of thinking for sure um, in in regards to muggles and witches and wizards and, and their relations and things like that um, and I think that we see that coming directly from the government and that is uncomfortable and uh, yeah, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way too um, and I yeah. don't know if that's just because of those things or because my interest level <laughs> in American uh, no. wizardry is high, but yeah Yeah, Brenton. Uh,
6: yeah, uh, I, actually it, with due respect to J.K. Rowling, I'm, I'm thrilled with what she does. Uh, there were times as a non American that the movie felt like it was an, a non American film, a non American writer of an American film. And, and I don't know, I, and I'd be curious to hear how Americans feel about this. So, what you get in the Ministry of Magic and the Harry Potter books, the corruption is individual, which creates then systematic results, right? So power, um, uh, lack of courage, whatever the issues are, and then it moves up from there. What you get in the film is this this culture. So the, the culture itself has created this, we're going to react to a bunch of problems that happen between the magic world and the non-magic world. So we're going to react to them, so we're going to create these protection mechanisms uh, that then create the need for a rebel like um, Grindelwald then to break those, because it's it's a problematic response. Whereas Newt, I almost call him Newt Gingrich, that's interesting, Newt Scamander... Different different perspective, I think. Newt <laughs> commander comes he comes in, right? And he offers actually sort of a third way out of that piece. So the British the British character comes in and offers this other way to think about and it's all defined by, you know, clause seventy three of the International Statute of Wizardry. It's a, it's this weird legal kind of problem that that are the children watching the film are supposed to struggle through as as many lawyers and and uh... you know the the disciplines and and all the secrecy issues so you've got all these issues about animals and about culture and stuff and then and so it's a different kind of a thing i was a, I was a little i love the film i love this film i was a little anxious about the as I speak as a Canadian into American culture, I, I I always remind myself where my seat is, and I'm I'm not sure that didn't get forgotten in the making of this film. Is that this is these are non-Americans speaking into American culture and then representing it? Because now we have a systemic problem, which then feeds individuals.
0: Was there not the bolstering of many uh, American stereotypes too, were they not oh. done in? shallow ways i
6: mean extreme yeah. interpretations lack of subtlety lack of nuance a black woman president in the 1920s which i thought was or half black i guess uh yeah uh, cd prohibition era bars new salem witch hunters and evangelical re- religious structures without the religion i mean it even starts at a bank right it's got everything <laughs> that, like where does you know where, where oh, does the uh-huh. That's right. Harry Potter starts in a suburb, uh, Harry Potter, America. I mean, we're in Manhattan, right? This is, it's, it's, it's a magical city. Yeah. Well, So. yeah. And
2: especially especially
4: the, the, um, the bare bones and them, you know, especially felt like a comment, you know, the kind of puritanical, like you said, you know, evangelical fundamentalist, but without the, any sort of, uh, the compassion, or you know, anything that you associate with, like yeah. you know, they're not preaching religion. They're not in service to anybody. It's that kind of pure legalism, um, which definitely feels um, whether there's truth in there. You know, I'm I'm sure there is, but it definitely felt like the uh, British comment on you know American culture, you know, in the past and and now. I think.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, asked
0: that thoughts about magical and non-magical folks not being allowed to marry and how it might compare to things like anti-miscegenation laws in the US. Um Erica has sent me a link to Dr. Sturgis's blistering critique of J.K. Rowling's attempts at American magic. So I'm gonna send you all that link right now. And Emily, you wanted to comment on this point?
3: I, I did and and I would recommend Amy's, I think that's probably her um her article in reason magazine it was excellent yeah. excellently done and um you know she, the thing about I, I mean i was i was really torn watching fantastic beasts because you know like brenton i really loved the film i was highly entertained by the film and and there were times with the american um portrayal that i was like hey i resemble that remark you know um <laughs> and and then there were other times where i was like gosh that's a little heavy handed you know and uh so, but I I do think you know the more I think about the bare bones crew, um, and the more I think about what what Rowling had to go through from some of the Christian right in this country with regard to her books, and and I'll tell you that I myself, as, as somebody who has utilized Harry Potter in you know my work in ministry and in my teaching. I'll use anything. I mean, I use Rogue One. I wrote an essay about Rogue One and the Paschal Mystery Today, you know, on Hogwarts Professor. So. I, I'll use anything. You know, if it's there, I'll use it, you know. So but, but, you know, uh, I, I got hate mail. You know, I, I was in an argument with somebody on a, on a, a blog last week um, who the person was suggesting that uh, a, somebody, a priest that they knew had to perform more exorcisms. Because of Harry Potter than not. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, I mean it's, it's just so special it's...
6: category of exorcism. It's yeah.
3: It's... Right, I know. I'm like, I, I, yeah. So so you know, these people are, are sure out there and obscure
0: and...
4: or no. what's that? I said, are you sure they're not just obscure
0: But yeah, right. <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. Well, thank you for saying that, Kat, because I want us to <laughs> narrow it a little bit more and get really, really specific with our critique of the bare bones and the witch hunt. Um, I have a question from someone on my blog that's... it's part of this. So let's do this question first and then anything else you want to do about the puritanism. So David Dawes asked this question on my blog. What about the language of repression? So they're talking about repressing the gift. And he asks, is this Freudian? And if so, who's Freudianism? Does it matter, as far as the film and the script, what had been written by Freud and translated and popularized or Supposed to assume that these characters had read Freud and were applying oh. his theory, or is it anachronistic, or is it just kind of loosey-goosey psychoanalytic pop psychology? So what what's going on with the repression of magic?
4: Does anyone remember? Do they use the word repression in the movie? No, keeping it remember. in. Um, yeah,
6: it's they don't. It's I don't the remember word.
0: one way or the other <laughs> the word. Kelly, you want to check the screenplay for us? <laughs> there you go. Ah! Break, break scan. They say suppress. Says Tony. Suppress. Okay. Yeah, that's right.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I mean, I took it as all being a metaphor, right? I took it to be a metaphor for sexuality.
1: So did I.
6: Yeah. A pretty
1: heavy-handed one too, is is what I, I, I saw so. in the movie.
6: Yeah, Brenton, you're not so sure. I don't know. Like, we might be doing the same thing that the writers did. You know what I mean? Like, we might be pop psychologizing the pop psychology. Like, like I suspect that actually the the metaphor was for magic, right? <laughs> I think, I I think actually I oh, I will it go back away. Oh,
2: literal magic. It wasn't a metaphor.
6: <laughs> so I a mean. double metaphor makes it literal. It's I will go back to kind of Emily's comment, and I think so. Someone who's lived within the United States but is not American somebody who dialogues with that world in a professional way I actually find America much more diverse but then, w- when you talk to people who who experience it through pop culture or through media or through like a 2016 campaign that went forever, it's a different kind of experience. And so I don't, I don't, I think it's very much ingrained in in, in what how America is perceived in the world. And so I think they would immediately just go to repression in general. And you can put in sexual. I don't think it's terrib- terribly terribly sexual. I think it's, I think this. I mean a great mistake in in the editors in the states uh was was actually calling it sorcerer's stone instead of philosopher's stone philosopher's stone would have been maybe a little put offish for some but it would have actually solved a, a big problem right from the beginning, and and from that point you've got this weird divergence uh, mm-hmm. where evangelical Christians are some of the biggest defenders of the Potter world and some of the biggest offenders yeah. against it, and, and so I think I think that's I think I think I will go with Emily. I vote Emily on that one. So.
3: well, and if I can if I can just you know so the metaphor for magic, I mean you know I think I think Brenton, I think you're you're right. I mean I I think it can be read as sexual, and I think that that's sure. even okay with the screenwriter and the the film's producers, that that it be read as sexual. But I think we have to remember what the overarching metaphor of magic is for Harry Potter, and I've always seen that as a, a sacramental metaphor in terms of, you know, magic is the ability to see the pr- power and the presence of God in, in the world. And, you know, our modern problem of, of uh, well, I shouldn't say problem, and it's not a problem to a lot of people, but our modern situation of, of uh, kind of secularization where religious viewpoints get repressed to the point where extremisms and fundamentalisms develop. I think you have a really a, a really multi-layered metaphor there going on, where you can take it as as the sexual metaphor sort of on the on the surface, but then if you dig deeper, it can be a metaphor for religious extremism um, because of, of of repression of, of religious expression. <laughs>
0: Is there a bit of a breakdown between um, primary world and secondary world here? And if so, is that a problem? So I'll be a bit more specific specific about what I mean. So when they talk about witch hunts, um, and there's a moment when Hermione laughs at the fact that they used to burn witches. Isn't that ridiculous? Ha ha. So for me, that seems to be a bit of a breakdown in the secondary world, that when it starts to cross over to the primary world, then I don't know where I am as far as... What I'm supposed to believe about magic and good and evil and good witchcraft and bad witchcraft? So, who wants to talk it's, about that? A
6: bit? But isn't the Harry Potter world actually not a secondary world, but actually an alternative history? Right? Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. So, so in that reading, what we see actually in and with the non-fiction additions to the Harry Potter world is we actually just we just get a different European timeline. It's right. the, the timeline told from the, the non-victors. It's so more I'd like.
0: like John- Strange and Mr. Norrell, then.
6: That's right. So I think, yeah, I, so in that sense, I don't think there's a breakdown. I think there's a rereading of history.
0: So then, were the um, were there any real witches involved in any of these witch hunts in the alternative history, then? And are there... is is witchcraft ever bad? Is it a matter of, like, using the magic for good or for evil?
4: Well, they mention witches who would get caught, real witches, who then would uh do magic on their, you know, flames so they would get happily tickled and have a good old time and pretend to die and then sneak away. Um, That's in somewhere in the books. I forget where. So I think it is supposed to be... I mean, probably we're meant to understand that some innocent people were... Book 3, was it? Um, We're supposed to... I think, like, there are meant to be real innocent victims that were killed, as happened in our own world, but, you know... Uh, a certain percentage of them may have been true witches, but any true witch would have uh, escaped pretty easily. Um, So I feel like that's the kind of impression that we're given, is it's a bit of a mix of both.
0: Okay, so then let me tie that together with what Emily was saying, which I really like, but I'm going to interrogate it for a minute, Emily. Um, So historically then, Christians, especially of the more sacramental types, have been really upset about witchcraft like that's not a good idea Mm -hmm. so to say that we're using let's see if i can get this right to say that we're using something that christianity forbids as our emblem for the sacramental Mm -hmm. is that problematic or is that cool
3: it's brilliant in my opinion (laughs) um... because well i mean you know christianity has always been a very materialistic uh... uh, religion uh... faith um... you know being just starting with the the starting point of the person of Jesus Christ being an incarnation of God, a, a sign of God in the material world, um, but more than a sign, someone who actually is God. You know, so so it's it's we're all we're essentially concerned with stuff, you know, and and the more the more uh, time progressed, the more we began to debate about the importance of stuff, um, and you know, the ca- uh, Catholics and the more sacramental uh, uh, versions of Christianity today are are more and more materialistic, and and you know, we spend more time with with our Our beads and our, our we we get up and we change our posture a lot during this. So so it's it's a very materialistic faith, and so um, so I think it's natural to um, uh, to have this this kind of uh, a comparison. And so, um, but I think it's brilliant because yeah, you're right. I mean, this is these are these are superstitions that people uh, feared in the Middle Ages, and and kind of actually performed kind of counter superstitions to. To try to ward themselves away from so it's it's playing on that tension um, and it, and it really is turning um, uh, some of the fears on it on their ear i mean she's she's setting this very Christian story in this setting uh, that you could interpret as very new agey and and sort of anti religion and so I think in that sense that that 's where the the brilliance lies is where she 's put this little gem in the midst of someplace you wouldn't look for such a thing um, and mm-hmm. I, and I and you know people are always you know, some of my students would talk to me about Harry Potter, like, what are you talking about, Christianity? And then I'd start rattling off some stuff, and they'd be like, you just ruined it for me. (laughs) Like, well, sorry, you know, but, um, so, so, yeah, so I think it's, you know, for somebody like me who does ministry, it's a great tool in the toolbox because it is so unexpected.
0: Mm -hmm. Let me put this into another context, too. Um, I've been studying modern magic, by which I mean, like, the Golden Dawn, you know, Yates and Crowley and Waite and those people, and, um, it's interesting there because, you have two different branches. You have the branch that um, that really saw itself as being a a Christian magical society. That they were Christians but they're also practicing astrology and Kabbalah and Tarot and they were fortune telling and so forth. And then you have the side that was doing the stuff that's traditionally forbidden by Christianity like the seances and communicating with spirits and things like that, but to tie this back to some of our favorite authors here at Signum. There were members of the Inklings who were involved in these things, you know, who were in these magical societies and were practicing these things and then using them in very, very similar ways. I mean, Charles Williams uses the tarot cards in The Greater Trumps in a similar way. Um, And didn't, um, didn't Sarah Brown recently give a talk about alchemy in Tolkien and how he's using alchemical symbolism? So this certainly can be done, and I like that you're saying that it's being done um, here in the Harry Potter universe as well, Emily.
6: Well, you've also, um, you've also got a different kind of magic too, right? Like the magics are not all equal either.
2: Right.
6: So I think like a, like a traditional Christian reading of magic would be the use of, of, of control, right? So it would be some sort of control for self-gain. And I think that's that's actually one of the tension questions you get in the whole Harry Potter world, which I think is cool, because it's actually just a normal human question of mm-hmm. control. So uh, I also... J.K. Rowling also subverts the whole kind of Christian West. Like, she makes Hogwarts just just before the first university founding. And, <laughs> like, she, she kind of does all these kind of things to kind of prep you. Uh, I looked up the line. It's... Uh, um, and, and Newt says, uh, young wizards and witches sometimes try to suppress the magic to avoid persecution during the still being hunted by muggles stage. And so there's these kind of these layering in. So I think actually, um, I think it can be, I think the different kinds of, like alchemy is really just kind of a pre-critical scientific perspective from one, one view, right? So I think they all end up being kind of different things. And I would, I would hate to smush them too much as we line them up right. and look at them.
2: Yeah.
0: Tony made the point that magic in the Harry Potter universe seems more like science than like religion. Yeah. Well, I want to start um, moving us towards wrapping up. So, audience members, send in your final questions, comments. Um, we've done a really great job of addressing the questions that came to me throughout the week. We've pretty much gone through, I think, every topic you all wanted to cover. Are there any sort of big picture things about adaptation, um, about film franchises, any other sort of like big concept things you want to cover. Um, While you're thinking of them, I'll read a comment Brianna just sent in. It's hard to also separate Twitter-era Rowling's post-Book 7 writing from Fantastic Beasts and her Pottermore writings that are less thought out and less researched. And they're kind of activist for current-day social issues. Um sometimes in conflict with the canon. So these are some good points you're making, Brianna, about like franchise and authenticity and canon.
5: So, uh, Curtis, so to
2: what
5: I was gonna say, so to what extent does that make uh Rowling like George Lucas? Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. As far as you know going back with these prequels that are maybe less well thought out, uh or or don't hold to what the fans, anyway, think is the true story of Star Wars or Potter or whatever. Right.
4: Well, it makes you wonder, you know, because uh, of at least uh, the divisiveness of the Star Wars prequels, um, you know, and Lucas's involvement in that. And then it seems to me like the last two movies have been much more well-received, both from, like, a fan point of view and just as movies, just for, like, the pure you know, non-fan general audience. They've been more successful, more well-received. It makes me wonder, like, to what extent should or need Rowling be involved directly in these continuing spin-off, you know, things. Now, The Cursed Child, she didn't write the play for, and that wasn't exactly well-received, so it's not like it's necessarily good or bad for her to be doing things, but, um... It just makes me wonder, with her continuing to come back to the well and expand on Pottermore and expand on these screenplays, like, there's a part of me that's curious what things would be like if they were written by these other people, and maybe she was continuing to write other stories in other worlds.
6: Although that she has, it has control. Her. She has a lot of control. Like, this yeah. is a, a far more controlled world than even Lucas's, right? Oh, well, I mean, how could you control what... Has become of uh, the Star Wars universe, but it's, it's she's she's even the cursed child. She was looking over the shoulder as 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 that came out, right? So we're not and, the
0: going to go on after the death of their original creators, right?
4: Right, but and it's that control to me that feels the most restrictive. Of even more so in the cursed child, but for both that and Fantastic Beasts, I don't know that I am convinced that every. Harry Potter world story needs to directly reference the same events, the same characters, the same story beats as what was in the original books. Because it sort of seems to me like you have the opportunity to go off and see something set in that world but from an entirely new perspective with entirely new concerns and yet we get Grindelwald who sort of you know Johnny Depp takes off his mask at the end and it's Grindelwald and it's sort of like okay So here's where we're going for the next five movies. On the one hand, I'm curious to see more detail about his story. On the other hand, are we giving up other opportunities in favor of something we already
0: have sort of explored before?
6: Or Bollywood, Harry Potter, maybe? On
0: that note, I'm going to sort of wrap us up with a final comment. Um, and I think that will, that'll be good for tonight. I just want to make one final observation, which has to do with sort of the power of these enduring stories. And I think that with the original core of each of these, so the original core three Star Wars movies and the original core seven Harry Potter books, I'd say that a lot of their power rested in their youths of myth, that they were really mythic. And they struck us as if they had kind of come out of a culture and as if they had been sort of collectively created rather than coming specifically out of the mind of just one individual creator. That's more so with the three Star Wars. Um, but they also just really tapped into archetypes and that's why we can do so much with them. That's why they're so enduring. And some of the later iterations and some of the spin-offs haven't been as mythic and haven't necessarily succeeded in those archetypes as much. Maybe they've stepped over into more stereotype. But the the core mythic power is there, and if future storytellers can continue um, to fulfill those great needs we have for storytelling, then I think they'll continue to be successful. All right, Um, that's about as much time as I wanted to to devote to this tonight, so I think we will wrap it up, but Thank you very much to each of the five of you for being here. Thank you to all of our attendees for being here and being so involved with your great comments. Sorry I didn't get to absolutely everyone, but I read everyone, and thank you for all you were saying. Remember, if you would like to support this series, you can go to signumuniversity.org slash fund slash donate. And we hope to see you all at future events. Thank you, Casey. May the force be with you, too.
2: Good night, everyone. Good night. Bye. Night.
6: I don't know if they're gone.
2: <laughs> cat, and They're, the they're all still here.
6: It, it looked like you guys were drinking out of the same cup because you had it in the corner, and it looked yeah. <laughs> well, no, when it was the other way, as you brought it to your mouth, it's white on the back end. It looks like you're reaching for the same cup and oh. sharing it, passing it
4: across. The thing. Yeah. Oh, no, but
6: it's the, the other way. Place. It's actually the other, way, way, other right? way. So yeah. yeah. Oh, so. see, the... over. She's over
4: here for me. Wait. Yeah. Um, well, I
0: didn't mess it up.
6: Yeah. That was my that was my favorite part.
0: Find way to pass it among <laughs> all six screens.
6: Yeah, that's right. That right. Would, No, it's a cool that trick. That would be awesome. Try. Yeah, if I had, if I had a Fantastic Beast, I would have snatched it from uh, Emily from the side here. If I could. Right, right. That's
0: yeah. really good. Other way, Emily.
6: Yeah, go back. Oh, though, right? sorry. I think
4: it's we're all, all in different me. spots for each other. Yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. we're gonna have.
6: I'm oh.
4: gonna have to work this out.
6: Oh yeah, <laughs> it it probably comes up <laughs> randomly. Goodness, but. Yeah. Yeah so just to me you two are at the top uh over here and it just looked like you were sharing. Did That's anybody funny. else? Can I ask a question I didn't want to be recorded? Did anybody did anybody else I just found the the characters of the the middle four of the central four of Fantastic Beasts. I found them to be sort of gorgeous characters like on on screen. I just I oh. I just I was very much connected to those characters and it,
0: the,
6: what, the in Desk Beasts? No. Yeah, yeah, I love those <laughs> four characters. I love those four yeah, characters.
0: Been... Like aesthetically, or
3: char- their characters themselves are uh, both? Um,
6: yeah, I guess I mean, I like I, I like the Kowalski, or whatever his name is, yeah. and P- Polanski, I can't remember any cool. of them. Okay, the
0: girls. Was <laughs> I, I was underwhelmed, I'm was gonna, leave, so I gonna an, to to an organizer so that I can
6: You were o- underwhelmed? Kat? I was, so, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
4: Or the characters. <laughs> um. Oh, uh, the whole film in general, but the characters. I I have a I have a Eddie Redmayne problem. I he has I have yet to what? be impressed by him in any form at all. Oh
6: <laughs> that, that creepy um, incest film? He was awesome in that. I can't remember the name of Savage Grace. Yeah, he
4: was. I I haven't great. seen that movie. I haven't seen that movie. I don't,
6: well, don't watch back to back.
4: I don't know what my problem is with him. I like him enough as a person when I see him sort of as himself. Um, I don't know that I think he's that good an actor.
6: Are you friends um, with him? Like, <laughs> like when you can see, see him at Starbucks?
4: Or? No, like in an interview or something. Like he's a likable person. I feel like he gets by on his kind of likability, and he's riding this wave of kind of, uh, I don't know. He's along with the Cumberbatches and all of them of, of you know, British... Guys with that, you know, of that age with that accent, I don't, I, I don't get it. Um, And this didn't change my mind. So.
6: (laughs) No, I like. I'm in on. I'm in on him. I'm in on. Whatever his name is, the baker. I thought like you don't.
4: The baker was pretty good. The
6: the baker. We had a fat man. Not, and that wasn't what it was about, right? So, I mean, it was a real kind of critical difference, right? I mean, there was he got stuck in the case once, but, you know, I would, I would have, too. And, and the... Uh, but he's a baker. Okay. Yeah, yeah he has a, and he's a baker. I don't know. He's going to die at 58. It's just the way things are, right? <laughs> and it's, it's... So, I like... And actually, I thought... Uh, Queenie, or Meanie, or Beanie, I can't remember the names. Not Tina, but the other one, Queenie. Right. I thought mm-hmm. I thought she was gorgeous, but not in the way that the book described as the most blonde, beautiful yeah. wizardess, uh, whichever. Like, yeah, yeah, like, see, yeah, she's not the daughter of a, um... Of a... a, a yeah. yeah, but I, to me, she was beautiful. Like, I thought she, she, she yeah. like, her kind of, the way that she endeared herself to the other characters, I was really... I found that intriguing. So I just, so she didn't know cool. why her sister
3: had to tell her to get dressed, though. I
6: was like, yeah. are, you,
3: yeah, are you on the spectrum? Like, what's going on?" <laughs> yeah,
6: that's right. And she knew they were coming, theoretically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I I don't know. No, I'm I'm the opposite on the characters. I love the characters. Mm-hmm. Those four. I I don't know about the. Uh, John, um, I don't know about the bad guy. So
2: mm. I
6: don't know. I don't know how I feel about uh, uh, what's his name, the Irish guy playing the bad guy. I don't
4: know. Oh, uh, Colin Farrell.
6: Yeah, I don't know about Colin Farrell. Farrell. Uh, I,
4: I and again, to me, that just—it was kind of silly to have like, okay, we have famous actor playing the villain who takes off, you know, his Scooby-Doo mask, and it's an even more famous actor playing an even. <laughs> like, really?
3: I like Please. Johnny
6: Depp, so we'll see.
4: <laughs> I know, I li- I liked, I was excited to
3: see Johnny Depp. but
6: uh. Yeah, like, I don't know if he's going to grow a dreads and start piracy on the side, but I think, uh, I mean, Johnny Depp's diversity of portfolio is one of the things that intrigues me to him. So to see a whole film, the next film being sort of about him and whether or not mm-hmm. he plays him, you know, whether, you know, whether we go back or forwards, I assume forwards, so mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't know. Yeah. still to me the the my favorite part was actually seeing the beasts that were in the books uh kind of come up and uh um but I'm still curious like like the, the stuff from Star Wars is all fiction that supplements it, or mostly fiction that supplements But the stuff that we have with the Harry Potter world is largely nonfiction that supplements it. That's a bit of a generational thing. Kids these days are just grabbing Marvel support stuff and DC support stuff. They're just they're gobbling up these things. And so I was disappointed in Fantastic Beasts because it wasn't the bestiary that you know, uh, like Tony De, De La Turizzi and Holly Black did with the uh, Spiderwick Chronicles, which is a lovely kind of beastie area. And so I was always disappointed that, in that, the result of Fantastic Beasts, I thought it could be a big, thick leather book that I'd pay $100 for, filled with sketches like a guidebook, and it wasn't, and so I was sort of sad. It was also like $4 used on Amazon, but... <laughs> so, so, so anyway, so I, so I hope that then they can take and they can even um, do that drawing version of the the screen shots and redo the book kind of based on that. I would love, I would like that as a beastie. Well,
4: that's kind of what I mean by like missed opportunities. Like, not that it had to be this, but like, I, I think I would have been more interested in like a, an actual story of, you know, a story about magic. Zoology, for example. Like, rather than, we're going back to the Grindelwald well. Like, of like, okay, there's beasts in the background but they're really kind of on the periphery of the story. And to me it's like, well, Newt in the wilds some story about him sort of hunting for these be- not that it would just be that, like there would be a story to it, but that would have been like an expansion in, in a way that um, it's interesting you brought up Marvel, because I'm not a big Marvel fan either. And this feels like it's that thing where everything just has to fit. And we have to make everything, all the puzzle pieces, fit and work. And it just feels less imaginative than I would kind of...
6: You and I are an opposite yeah. worlds, cat here. So,
4: <laughs> <laughs> Well, bringing
3: us back to the question about control of the universe, and I think it's really interesting, and, and um, Curtis and, and Kelly, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like the picture that we that we got about Star Wars and the, the making of all those Star Wars, the first six Star Wars films both from the Chris Taylor book and also from Amy in class was that you know it, it was like the more Lucas was sort of willing to collaborate you know the better the films turned out. So like the original yeah. three you know, he was so, still so new that he couldn't, he had to collaborate and then but in the prequels that he was so, he was so concerned with control over those and they suffered as a re- result, and that's why I've been so excited about the newest Star Wars offerings. Is because they feel like this great collaborative effort. Um, collaborative effort. They don't feel like it's tokenism. You know, when they have a character of different, you know, characters of different ethnicities, it feels very natural. It feels very real.
2: The, the I,
5: and I worry about beasts because of the control issue. Yeah, I agree with that. The thing that um, actually always comes up in my mind when when I think about that and and the different level of control that. Lucas, or, I mean, anyone really, is, um, you know, the, the Tolkien letter to Milton Waldman where he says his own legendarium should be linked to a majestic hole, but we've for other minds and hands, and it's that mm-hmm. ability of other people to come in and add their own bits to it, and not that necessarily the auteur or whoever, you know, like George Lucas has bad ideas, but... Um, He was also, from the very get-go, he was also a terrible script writer and Mm. and storyteller. Like, when you look at those histories, like, you see, like, there were a lot of people sort of behind the scenes cleaning up his dialogue and and sort of giving him advice, like, (laughs) like Francis Ford Coppola, you know, a little guy like that, you know, sort
6: of, you
5: know, saying, well, what about this? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and 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 the
6: actors, yeah. The
5: actors did it. So... I I agree with you, like, the more that he sort of controlled things, and not just that he controlled it, but um, as I think Brenton, you alluded to earlier, like, you know, by the time the prequels come around, you know, you can't, that's a genie you can't stuff back in the bottle, right? Because you've already had this expanded universe that's been going on for a decade, over a decade at that point, you know, with comics and novels and, and... (laughs) <laughs> I mean, even the Star Wars Christmas special and that kind of stuff that have just opened so many different doors that for him to just say, no, now I'm going to take control of it all
6: Well, the, the, is just the, ridiculous. The Star Wars fans are the token super legalists of the earlier generation, right? So you see this, like, you just can't get away with certain things in the Star Wars world, right? So even if you wanted to play with it, I think you're limited just by the fan and, base
5: and i'll be i mean
6: in a good way maybe
5: i've i've struggled with the prequels i mean i'll i'll accept them because like they're not going away unfortunately like they're still going to be there and so i've tried to like come to grips with it but um even like so there was an article passed around recently about um, there was a discussion in the eagle and dragon forum of, around the whole uh state of healthcare in the prequels and um, why Padme, you know, like, never saw an OBGYN during her pregnancy and, like, and like, and, like, you're, like, I was reading it and I'm like, these are all really good points but at the same time there's, like, that knee-jerk reaction to defend the Star Wars work and I'm, I'm like, really, I'm like, I'm trying to defend the prequels. Like, there's, not, there's never been anything else where I've wanted to defend the prequels before. Why is this, right. like, an instinct in me? Um, right. And I ended up not commenting on the post because I didn't know how to resolve my own conflict in my mind about it, but... Um, I don't know. I kind of rambled there, but it's, Well, and
4: I feel like it brings up, I feel like I've, I've been thinking about canon a lot lately, trying to figure out, like, why these certain things piss me off and other things don't, and, like, um, I don't know, like, like, for the legalistic Tolkien fans, like, I love the canon wank stuff. Like, I just finished right. my reread of Lord of the Rings, I'm into the appendices, it's great. Like, lists of names, I'm, like, all there. But, like, yeah, he was not legal he was not legalistic. He constantly rewrote his stuff. And we, we think of it as legalistic because we have a printed final version, but like that's why you have the history of Middle-earth is to say that in 1915 it was one thing and in 1937 it was something else and it was one thing when it was published in 1955 and by 19, you know, 70 it was something different and he was constantly evolving and but he never just said like what they what they did with some of the Star Wars spin-off where they said, okay, this doesn't count anymore. So all these beloved books that you grew up reading, they now have no meaning, and because we say so. Like, he would find a way to include it and have, okay, it's all true, it's just, well, it depends on which record you're reading, or it was elvish bias, or it was like, you know, Bilbo told two different versions of a story, and yeah. They're both true in the world. Yeah, exactly. Like, one was the fudged, this makes me look good version, and one was the true version of what really happened. And he found a way to redo it without kind of saying, okay, this is now non-canon. Like, I don't think he thought of canon the way we do, where you have this list of, like, rules that you have to sort
2: of, you know. See, I was was accused of being immoral
6: for saying that. Like, I I did a, on the, we did a blog, series right cat uh, on, on um the, the last hobbit movie and and mm-hmm. uh, there was a, a few different bloggers, and I did mine on living text and how Tolkien kind of moved his text forward, it was always alive, and actually whether we like it or not, actually we're contributing to the text, and so are the filmmakers and so are the fans, and so are uh, you know, the, actually even the in the token world, of course, there's all a whole bunch of Lord of the Rings-esque material that's not as good, or not quite as good or maybe some as good on its own merits and so that's living text, I was called immoral right, for <laughs> you know, for not saying immoral. that the films were all ban- immoral, like literally, it's on my blog I was called like you you're like like you you cannot be a a good human being, you know, for not just trashing everything that Peter Jackson did right, and I wonder and i and 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 of course, Star Wars, when I said that the world was getting smaller, I also meant that the fan base kind of narrows down possibilities as the as the possibilities explode, there's still this kind of narrowing, and maybe that's actually sort of the organic way that Canon develops, like Canon is never. Like canon, if we talk about biblical canon or something like that, it's actually something that emerges out of a community,
2: mm-hmm. and then
6: is shaped by all these different forces and factors, right? And so that's actually a pretty good description of what happens in, in the Star Wars world. It's not a good description of what's happened in the Harry Potter world, right. right? In the Harry Potter world, it's just it's a much it's very it's a very much controlled thing. And there will be other stuff. Like I would like I would pick up seven more Harry Potter books today if they're written by J.K. Rowling and there was something different.
2: I mean, well, I'm, and I mean, I'm, like,
6: I'm,
4: I'm interested in it all, even if I don't like it all equally. Like,
2: yeah,
4: you begrudgingly assume you, you, uh, you know,
1: yeah. You yeah, yeah if I go back and not read that,
2: you, you would've would it. Write
1: it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I <laughs> wasn't. She didn't write this, and that's no, it. No. Made me mad because she you can tell has. she didn't write it. Right, yeah. it was yeah. indulgent fan fiction. And it wasn't even it wasn't even good and I write fan fiction. I love fan, you know i it wasn't good well, you, you well, and that's kept... the
4: thing is it was indulgent period. I don't care it if it's fan fiction or not. There's great like I think Rogue One and all these things we're talking about are fanfic in that sense of it's later people, not even the creator, expanding the world in new ways um, yeah, but Force
6: Awakens and some of it sucks. <laughs> Right, Force Awakens. Like, I think uh, one of the weaknesses of that film was the giving back over to nostalgia and fan. I mm-hmm. thought Rogue One had kind of cleansed itself of some. Like, it got it out of the system in the in the Force Awakens. So there was a lot more freedom, sure. uh, like killing off all the characters. Yeah, yeah, they
3: were they were um like icing on the cake in fro in, in Rogue One, whereas it, the nostalgia was built into the plot in Force yeah. Awakens. And I think that's yeah. why you had a lot of backlash from from some fans. I loved it, but you had a lot of backlash. I, I yeah, recy- yeah, this is just recycled A New Hope and blah blah blah, blah. whereas Rogue One people, you know, I, uh, my best friend and my husband both got up out of the theater and said I like that better than The Force Awakens.
6: Mm-hmm. And I
3: don't yeah. agree, I mean, I, I like them both, but, but I think that that's what you're, you know, that's what people are trying to express, is that you, you don't want the plot recycled. You want, you want to see that one guy from the bar on Tatooine, that's pretty funny, but you don't yeah. want the
4: plot recycled. Good, right, and to me, good. like, to me, fan fiction is a neutral term. You know, it's not. It says nothing of quality to me. Like it's, it's yeah. the impulse to retell a story from a different angle or new perspective or expanded or whatever. And sure. sometimes,
2: yeah.
4: and sometimes that results in a cursed child. Sometimes that results in a rogue one. Sometimes, for me, like all of Arthurian literature <laughs> is fan fiction. Like, yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah, like
4: uh, it says, and it can be good Including or bad. Including the originals. Sure. Yeah. Like the ones,
6: all the ones we have are <laughs> are based
4: on are, are based on something. None of sure. those are what like stories
1: yeah. are. I mean, people were doing this. I mean, I think it was even Corey in one of his in one of his classes that said, you know, in the Middle Ages, you, if you rewrote one of the great works of literature, that was amazing. If you came with something original, who who cares? That's right. <laughs> yeah, that that yeah. was the mentality, and that's really why. We why would
6: you stuff. want to be original? Like I don't. I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense. There's no reference points. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 It's like yeah. telling a joke part way in, right? And and storytelling has that oral kind of feature that we've we've narrowed it down, we've lost it. I think film can help us recover orality. But but we've the 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 textual reality of these things kind of kind of means that we we have this originalness that has to come out of these these moments. But kids will re re reread and rewatch the same thing over and over again. Like it's just it's it's liturgical. It's it's ritualistic the way that they'll read these things. And 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 I wondered the way to the world too. I think affects. So I think today if we had the right people, they could insert good things into the Middle-earth world that were were representative and, and fill that out. But I don't know if Narnia n- needs anything, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I think it's better to leave that open. I think anybody who wrote Narnia film, or books today, would just end up writing something that wasn't right. as good. And, well, right. and Maybe that,
4: certain things are more suited to that than others. Maybe, yeah. Well, but
6: there's a well, weight I, to the world. But that, I think that that so- Narnia doesn't want weight to it, right?
5: Mm. But even even to that point, like there's still stories like Bridge to Terabithia, which relies heavily on the Narnia story to tell its own completely different story. Right. Are...
6: Yeah, and and they did it. No, that's great. And uh, uh, when you reach me uh, by what's her name? She wrote Lyra and the Spy Patterson or no? Uh, and uh, There's this book When You Reach Me that loops Madeline uh Wrinkle in oh. Time all throughout, and actually, so she actually. She actually accepts one part of. Oh yeah, it's I when know. you reach me, but Rebecca I Stead.
2: It
6: down. Yeah, actually, oh, I, Rebecca- on my blog, just if you just go into my blog and you and you uh, you search for Rebecca Stead, uh, you'll find it. And I actually talk about that intertextuality. It's it's not. I called it. Is it a new kind? And of course, if I had waited a week, I wouldn't have written that. But the this. She she actually accepts a part of the worldview of the Madeleine Lengel. Uh, wrinkle in time piece but it's it's completely different kind of setting uh... and and i i thought it was elegantly done and uh, and of course that happened a lot more in the past. And that's when when uh, Serena talked about the double clicking on the other universe. She's referring to a paper I wrote where I said that what C.S. Lewis does, he's very much that intertextual guy where he draws in all these other worlds. And when he puts an image or a word up, you double click it and you get the whole world behind that, whether it's Arthurian or Charles Williams or or token before you finished it, right? And you click on it and then you get the world behind it. And that's what she's referring to. And I think that. Rebecca Stead did that really well in that little book. It's just a, a two-hour read, hour-and-a-half read, quick book.
2: Nice. I, remember, I never um, heard
1: of that before. Yeah, my uh, my old coworker worker who's a children's book specialist up in San Francisco, loved that book. And I yeah. couldn't place it, but as soon as he said Rebecca Stead, yeah, it's supposed to be really, really good. Yeah, it's,
6: um, a, it's a fun book, yeah.
4: That What you were just saying about the clicking into hyperlinks mm-hmm. of other things, that's kind of the premise of uh, John Granger's book, Harry Potter's Bookshelf. Is that that's oh, yeah. what Harry Potter yeah. does? It's like, it oh, okay. Cool. It because through the references and the borrowings from other types of literature, you you could use that as a gateway to you know Jane Austen and schoolboy yeah. novels and gothic literature, yeah. whatever, and it kind of opens up the the library for you.
6: Yeah, the book I haven't written is that I actually think that. CS Lewis is actually, like, um, he pictures authors like a round table, like Arthurian round table, and the, the way that they contribute, uh, you know, in, in that world, the way that they share and the way that they're they're their gentlemen and knights together and all those sorts of things uh, including the occasional queen Guinevere the the way that they interact and the, and then the way that the medievals would build a cathedral or build a book or a story or you know or build uh, you know a community that's actually how lewis wants to write and that's how he views other authors so when he's mm-hmm. looks like he's ripping off or or drawing in he's kind of he actually views himself in fellowship with these others and so i'm tra- i just finished transcribing lewis's first Novel attempt when he was seventeen years old he wrote a Arthurian tale called plus quest of blarus it's about maybe a third or a half done i don't know uh, and he abandoned it because he was bored and uh he um uh, he says in in there he's writing epistolary to Galahad, which is what he called his best friend um, and, uh, arthur greaves and and he, he actually writes in there if you know, my dear, our dear friend, our friend uh, Jane Austen would be able to describe this character. I just simply can't. And he kind of moves on, and, and, and so even at seventeen, I had this instinct to kind of draw these other people in okay. into his his own kind of imaginary fellowship, uh, and and, mm-hmm. and so they all become part of his literary project. Um, he just died before they all got out, I think. But yeah, so so that's kind of you the on social media. Can you say <laughs> that again?
3: Can you imagine him on social media? He'd he'd been cra- oh. he'd be crazy. He, never,
2: he might
6: he lock himself totally in a distracted. room.
2: <laughs> yeah,
6: that's right. Well, see. It, it, I don't know if he. I don't know if he could do it because you can't be the same kind of reader. Like none of us, if we engage in social media, could be the kind of reader that he was, where he would sit for, you know, ten hours, and and there was no reading that was good for him unless it was an hour long, right? And whereas right. we we skim we skim. Uh, Screens right, and uh, we grab things. We I mean, we can all sit for hours and read, but but we grab things. And I don't know if he could do it. Just the quickness of the movie. So you look at Rogue One and Forty Years Before, you know, New Hope or Star Wars, is what I call it. Like like the quickness. Like we just you couldn't. I don't know if seven some, someone in seventy seven couldn't watch the film that we just watched. Mm-hmm. That fast. was what I yeah. was Is
1: when watching them like in order and stuff, it's like, I, I can't see, like, someone going from Rogue One, or even Force Awakens, or whatever, um, watching a modern film and then slowing down enough and appreciating right, the older films. It just doesn't work it Doesn't to
5: me. Yeah, I felt that way more for Force Awakens. Like, that was one of my criticisms in my review of it, was that it felt like you snapped your fingers and you were across the galaxy, right? Like... <laughs> You, I, well, especially when you think about in in A New Hope, like how long are they on the Millennium Falcon while it's in hyperspace? Like well, they Luke play does chess. All, right, they play chess, and Luke does yeah, his training. How to be a Jedi. You know, like, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Literally, all of his Jedi training happens in hyperspace <laughs>
6: right. in the that's, middle of the movie, like <laughs> in that moment. <laughs>
5: It's, it's, um, a great, it's a great, great moment. And, and like I get, I get that there's different sort of sensibilities and and the need, well, maybe not need, but but the expectation of you know like cutting from thing to thing. But I do think I I noticed it more in Force Awakens. But I I understand like the criticism or or comment uh, like we had earlier where where it was like you get five planets in five minutes and you're expected to sort of remember all of these things and. Mm know how they all fit in, um, and all that. Well, I don't, I don't know what... Notes?
6: Well, I, I watched it, or, I actually, or watch
5: it three times.
6: <laughs> I watched it, I actually downloaded a part of it, like someone with a camera, or yeah. right, one of those versions, so that I could rewatch for this, just cause I, I just needed to, cause it was <coughs> two months ago or whatever, right, that I saw right. it. And so there, are a month and a half ago, so it was, it, I mean, that was a tough thing. One of the things, though, like, I love about the potential of the Star Wars world is this... So, like, Chirut, or Chirut, or whatever his name is, the, the Ip Man, <laughs> when he dies, right, like, he's like the death of the Jedi, in a sense, but he's also not the complete Jedi, right? There's just, right. there's all these things, and I love seeing now, in my mind, I can replace the movies, I can actually see the degradation of technology through the series... Right, so it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. The the sheer technology. That's why you don't have an OBGYN And then, but at the same time, we we've got to reconcile with the filmmaking kind of going like this, right? As far as you know, like sophistication, right?
4: The, um, of the effects and everything. Yeah, that's right. The yeah. the
6: effects, and yet there were some zippers on the back of the Rogue One film, and there were some awkward lines. Like in some ways. Like like it was good that way. I kind of enjoyed that it wasn't perfect in some ways too. So to me, it wasn't quite as tight as Force Awakens, which I kind of liked. I like the zippers on the backs actually. I like the Ewoks and and where you see like a jean pant leg or something like that. this These these things are cool, uh, cool for me. I don't know. I I wonder is uh, if Anakin had been cast differently would we just be disappointed with the first three movies the adult Anakin if he was if he wasn't such a whining snot would we I mean, have felt I
4: feel like I feel like one of the bigs and this is as a non Star Wars like fan person so this is like an outsider's perspective but like to me for these most recent two movies I feel like good casting goes a long way Uh, towards uh, covering a a multitude of sins in, you know, in script or in thin characterization. Like, if you have a really good... And they've gotten, like, these are good character actors that they're hiring. And you don't need a giant, big backstory when you have someone like Oscar Isaac who can, like, kind of, like, show you or or any of them, any of these new ones and stuff. So... um, yeah, maybe casting is like part of the the flaw of the prequels. I'm not getting a whole problem, but
6: well Anakin I, was painful. I, I think know, the
2: following problem was. Anakin. He was I, painful,
3: you know what Anakin is a whining snot. I, I mean that that is
2: in yeah. especially in my
3: head canon. In my head canon, <laughs> Anakin is just a difficult young man. And I, I feel like Hayden Christensen did a pretty good job with it. I had a huge problem with Natalie Portman, especially in the first in the first film. I was like, "Oh my gosh, we don't have time for this captain. Why did she talk like that? Who told her to talk like that?" So yeah, my problem was more it. with her. And I mean, I just think you know, Jar Jar Binks was just such a blot on that first film. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, it's like this big <laughs> popular thing to to get. To get all You're sentimental so and get all appreciative of Jar Jar Binks these days and, like, stop the Jar Jar hating, stop the Jar Jar, you know, and, and I appreciate that, and I, I it's
2: okay to like him. Where is that, him. <laughs> attitude towards <it>. No, <laughs> <It's seriously.
3: not laughs> like, so I watched, I listened to the podcast, Reven- uh, I'm sorry, Full of Sith. And they have a Facebook page and everything. Nice. And it's like a kind of a really nice community and like yeah. one of the yeah. one of the things that they try to do is be welcoming to all types of fans and not try to pull this, you're not a real fan if you like the prequels or you're exactly. not a real fan yeah. if you don't like the prequels or whatever. So I appreciate that. And but there's a lot of people who are like doing this Jar Jar thing where they're like, oh, you know, Jar Jar is actually the key to everything because, you know, Qui-Gon encourages Obi-Wan to accept him. He's this kind of lesser fool character and yet he becomes this key component to winning the war on Naboo and everything. I agree with that in the short term, but like, they're like, actually he's the key to the whole series because when Yoda meets Luke on Dagobah, he acts like Jar Jar to try to test Luke to accept this foolish character. I'm like, you are confusing him with Dobby the house elf, okay?
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> he is not Dobby the house elf. Dobby
2: the house elf actually had a
3: character arc, you know, that ended heroically, yeah. but Jar Jar did
5: not. No matter what they did with him in the Clone it Wars, it, it ended yeah. sadly, yeah. so, well, and then sadly, actually. So sorry, I was just going to say the goofiness of Yoda though is actually more. I, it's like either a second or third draft of <laughs> A New Hope, where which it wasn't called A New Hope, of course. Um, where, uh, Star Wars. uh, yeah, Star Wars. Where, well, it was the adventures of Luke Starkiller at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah,
2: Starkiller. Yeah.
5: Where, where Obi Wan Kenobi is that more of that impish? And there's actually there's actually dialogue. I tweeted it out from the the Mythgard uh, Twitter account. There's actually dialogue that that uh, yeah. Lucas stole right out of Tolkien. It's the uh, the Good Morning passage from the. The Hobbit, <laughs> of where where you have where you have Luke and Ben doing the whole good morning bit, and
2: uh, and and There's then it's like, that.
5: well, yeah, I mean, obviously it was changed, but you know, then Kenobi goes off and it's like giggling, like Yoda, like off to the side, and anyway, it's just kind of yeah. a funny little anecdote, but oh. yeah, Lupin <laughs> wants
3: to talk, Kelly. Just let him talk. He wants <laughs> to. Talk. Feels about
5: jar jar um, he's well, telling me it's well, dinner time well there's a momentary lull, well, I shared with you guys I couldn't share with I don't know if we actually still have people listening or are like, we I mean, just was, talking yeah, to he, ourselves they or...
2: can still see us <laughs> oh, um, okay. oh. Yeah, that
5: would be... <laughs> can
3: they hear I us? Think or 29 us. people are still here right
5: I I shared with you guys anyway, because I can't share with everyone, apparently, um, the link to Kat and I's uh, 100th episode of our podcast where we talk a lot about canon. And you can get her full feelings on the Marvel, uh, (laughs) you know, on the MCU. Uh, Well,
4: in fact, I was going to bring this up earlier, because in that, probably in the show notes, I linked to, like, in my Doctor Who research, this thing I found, like, the, my favorite clarified for me how I feel about canon, and it's a long blog post, which you probably only really care about if you like Doctor Who, but, but basically about why canon is stupid and evil. Well, and they're why still watching.
6: Happen. Sorry, I'm sorry, Chris Swank just answered your question. They're still watching. <laughs> Can you guys hear? Yeah. Oh okay. my I, goodness. I
1: can't see anything about it. I can't see what people are typing, though. Right.
6: No, I... I, I got it. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I don't I
1: think... Um, and... yeah. Oh, oh my goodness.
6: Now, so think I'm the organizer
5: now, oh, so... I'm the organizer now,
6: so...
4: Do you have power over
6: so, yeah, so
2: situation?
6: Oh, uh, yeah, we're still here. <laughs> we're still watching. Cat <laughs> is a canon hater, says Neil. <laughs> uh, and people are, are starting to leave here, but... Uh they're, they're, they commented about the Clone Wars uh, animated series but how Jar Token wrote like the niggle stuff. <laughs>
3: like all of this is here. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well done, <laughs> folks.
5: Great comments. We did it a- great comments.
6: Yeah, Kay- Casey says hello, Brenton. Hello, Casey. So uh the yeah, I'm sorry I really interrupted somebody speaking there, but it was just all of a sudden there's I have all this material here. You that's, attention.
2: Uh, Kat,
4: you were yeah, hating on canon. Right.
6: Oh, I was of oh, right. canon.
4: Anyway, there's it's a very long and uh, I think for me clarifying post about the aspects of canon which can be dis- destructive to creativity and community rather than helpful of it. So is this, um, you, you,
2: this
1: is a blog
4: post. Not mine. No, I think I brought, I referenced it in our discussion. It's by another blogger. It's uh. It's called like canon in sheep shit, something like that, and
2: <laughs>
6: in, a, um, in a sheep shed, like as in meditation. No a sheep, sheep,
5: sheep shed? shit. Sheep shit. Oh, okay. That's um. Great. One more time. Let's that's <laughs> that's kind of Just emphasize. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> what? Sheep what? Oh, Another yeah.
4: thing you were saying about the when you this reminded me when you're talking about the difference between the casting is, I thought of the difference between the effects and. To me, for the, the more recent Star Wars movies, like, the rediscovery, not just in Star Wars, but in, like, lots of other movies, of, like, practical effects of, like, just because we have a green screen doesn't mean we have to use it all the time. And
2: yeah. I just feel yeah. like
4: that one thing in uh, The Force Awakens of Ray pouring the water on her bread and it, like, expanding in front it's of her was, like, better than three prequel movies of like CG everything. Yeah. Like you know, like just that, that notion of you can go back to things that have real weight and you know and you use you use the CG around it to create the world, but you have real light that bounces off of like objects and it just gives things I- a different feel, I think.
6: I think that horrible apocalyptic film, 2012, was the tipping point in Mm -hmm. CGI. And and whether filmmakers have figured it out or not, there's there's a recovery of the uh, textural... Mm-hmm. Right to to use um, embodiment, to use Emily's phrase. Right, there's a there's a recu- there's this desire to kind of come back and to touch and 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 I was I was a little disappointed with the the last three uh, Hobbit films, the three Hobbit films because they they actually moved us away from mm-hmm. trees and dirt and like I couldn't smell the films, right? Uh, right? Which I can't, by the way, that's not a special gift, but like you can, I can fill that part in. I don't want a four D experience. I want I don't know what the fourth D is, but I assume it's smell, or maybe it's tickling chairs. I don't know what it is, but I.
1: I... Going like that on a, the falling right. bricks. Oh,
6: well, is and that something right? Something
1: like he didn't. They didn't use uh, real
4: miniatures. You know, they went yeah. to
6: models. there's the bigatures?
4: Right, exactly. The, the that are... makes a difference, like whether no, or not you realize it. It makes a difference in how you
1: perceive like, like the movie. Like you... Yeah, they didn't use real people. Like Dane is is. C- completely like CGI. Like, why would they CGI yeah. adore?
2: Yeah. Speaking of
1: which, what did you all think of the CG people in
4: Rogue One? We didn't talk about that at
5: all. Yeah. Oh. oh. Yeah, Bill Cushing. Um, I did, I, it was tough for me to focus on what he was actually saying.
6: Yeah, I just ignored uh, him. It,
5: it which is that frustrating. Because for me, so Tarkin as a character. I mean, obviously, from Star Wars, you know, he's a big part there as, like, the guy in, you know, charge of the Death Star and all that. And he has a big role in Catalyst as well, you know, the the prologue to Rogue One. So it was really hard for me to focus on just what he was even saying and doing as I kept thinking, like, man, I wish they had just, like, pulled away and, like, made things a little fuzzier (laughs) and, like, not had, like, that close-up of him, like, so
3: long I would, have, I would have been happy with the recast I, you know honestly I felt a little weird about it from an ethical standpoint Me too. Like, I had the exact same I mean? thought followed so closely by then Carrie Fisher's unfortunate passing sure. I don't know if they knew I that would like, happen no I'm sure they didn't but <laughs> at the same time yeah, it kind is. of a
5: surprise
4: yeah. What kind of a
3: can of worms does this open? You know, like, right? Exactly. Well, exactly. I mean, it felt bad for his family. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they loved it. Maybe they thought. Maybe enough time. I would is imagine that acid they
5: acid would have had to, to ahead, get. For I would sharing, imagine so. they would have had to have some kind of legal. Oh well, uh,
3: he, his, you his know, estate was thanked in the in the in the credits. Yeah. yeah.
6: Well, they're. But they're all looped in, too, right? So um, in Gladiator, I can't remember who the mentor character's name was, but he died during the filming, and that was kind of the first CGI character that I know that was that was meant to match in that sort of way. Um, and, and and so that's fine, but if the Dumbledore actor had died and they did that for the movies three to seven... like right. So I th- I, th- I think there's places... Uh, Neil here on the comments said that Leia was so quick and it was just... Uh, he liked the connection. I have to say that one was better yeah. certainly than yeah. um, yeah. the other right. one. Extended so
4: sequences of it.
6: That, yeah. that, that, that's right. But I have to, yeah, I'd have to say I would love for someone just to walk a dog in a film. Like I, I, I want to I want to see if footprints match up or like the footfalls match up with the feet. You know, I, I don't know, I'm just I'm yearning for, for for, some connection. I would like, like that's one of the th- the things about the original like when we land on one of these worlds, we stayed a while out of space, right? And I think they've forgotten in the Star Wars movies, the big movies, that actually it's not space that we love, right? It's not blackness with stars that are just kind of in the background. There's something else. And it's not travel that we love. It's, it, it's And then is it war that we love? Like, um, are Star Wars disappearing into the... Just the action kind of world. I don't know. So so they have to discover what we love, I think, and and for me I, I, I want more text based movies, right? And um I don't watch a lot of realistic fiction, but I watched uh, Sing Street the other night with my wife and we just did a in, in the Indie Irish movie night and uh it was it was great. It was just dumb kids and playing instruments with moderate skill and uh, that was great for me sort of a relief after all the Marvel films and stuff you know right right yeah. which my kid is a, a, a super fan and so I will end up seeing them all plus all the background stuff and I'll I'll have all the coffee book table material I just can't do anything about it but and I like aspects of it but I want something connected for me so the uh, so apparently 4D is sends around so Neil says 40. And Corita says that a tickling chair. Her husband says that I don't think tickling chair is that genre of film. So apparently it's not a tickling chair. <laughs> but
3: You can you know. get those at the salon, though, when you get your feet done. You can have the.
6: Okay, that's shirt. right. That's it right. And maybe put stuff. a. I was going to say put a tunie in, but you don't have tunies. Put, put a coin in uh, uh, into the chair, right, to make it operate it. No, no, uh,
3: it's. it's, uh, it's they're with the price of the, of the, of the, the pedicure, so,
6: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, somebody, there's a question for you, Kurt, from Hans-Joseph. Uh, I want to ask how Rogue One plus the original trilogy line up with the history of the IRA.
5: I don't know the history of the IRA well enough <laughs> to, to well, talk about they that. Were,
6: Sorry. They were the terrorists of the age, like, so the movies start. Sure. I mean, their terrorism is much more local than it had been. So, so maybe there's sort of a connection there. But, uh, somebody should write a blog post on that out there Yeah, of all I, these people it's, who we didn't you know were <laughs> watching.
5: It's very possible it. There, there, that it lines up very well. I, I just don't know enough about the IRA. Sorry.
6: Yeah. People
3: making Star Wars now are big history people, which is great. I mean, I, I see a lot of that coming through in, in the storytelling um, going forward, and I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah so I, would no, I, uh, I don't know. I don't know dude.
6: Yeah, that's an. It's that mythic connection. I think Serena was right, in, in that, and that's why Joseph Campbell loved the at least the original Star Wars work. Is mm-hmm. uh, thinking about it, he was able to think about it critically from his archetypal kind of standpoint. So,
2: right, speaking well, I'm. Of I'm
6: and... on, oh, is what do you mean? Is Joseph Campbell. Well,
3: he, you know, well, no, I mean, because uh, Lucas kind of utilized uh, yeah. Campbell in his
1: storytelling. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. There's there's a that. there's a
6: loop there, right? Yeah, yeah right, right.
1: Yeah.
6: It's very Slavoj Zizek kind of a moment uh, yeah. in, in history there. So yeah. Did he,
1: did yeah. He on purpose or no? I know he like he yeah. he sometimes said he did, and sometimes said that it was you know his own thinking. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, I mean, of course, he's
5: so a. According things, to. According to How Star Wars Conquered the Universe, he read it as he was writing between one of the drafts that he wrote. I don't remember which which draft Mm -hmm. specifically. He also read, like, The Golden Bough and, like, Mm -hmm. a bunch of different fairy tales and and that sort of thing. So he was very, he was immersing himself a lot in sort of the fairy tale and then into Joseph Campbell's work about fairy tales and and all of that stuff at the time that he was writing it. I don't and think we've done Apple. a Golden Ballot.
6: Sabrina. No. Not that I'm
5: aware of. No, we have not.
6: And, and have we done a Joseph Campbell? I I don't know. There's there could be a not, there could be a not a
5: not any on of courses. He's, he, he's been mentioned obviously, but yeah. not as like a study itself.
6: Here yeah, are a Thousand faces.
5: That. I keep I'm pushing me. for an alchemy course too.
6: Like a how-to.
3: And like well, <laughs> no. um, but like I think like. Or, or like magic, you know, some some kind of survey of magic in in you know Western well, this, literature. This should be you know, Serena's
4: next you know. project: is create the kind of magic and the cult class for signum of like the history well, she, of Batman yeah, but she's Western in.
6: She does really scary stuff. The Book <laughs> of English Magic. That's lovely. <laughs> there you go. Well, I actually I actually suggested a course um, uh, like. Basically called fantastic beasts somewhere to find them. But apparently, there are legal problems with that. Just to actually to do to do a, a class on bestiaries and then to do a class also with a class on fantasy maps, right? So we actually spend time on both of those because I mean you could certainly spend 12 weeks on either, but to spend some time in some great bestiaries and to spend some time on some of the great fantasy maps might make kind of a cool kind of collaborative collaborative class and and that's one of the things that's missing. So in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find them, we get the beasts but we don't get the maps. We he keeps referring to these places and we don't get to go to them. Yeah, uh, we right. get sort of Arizona backyard in the in the suitcase. We get this sort of little zoo in the Arizona, right? Which is cool. I've not been to Arizona. So but where I, I wanted to see Egypt and Africa and Eastern Europe and like the ridge back D- uh, dragon cool. habitat it. and all that. Stuff. We'll and get like, there.
1: I-, I think in each movie, it's based somewhere else, oh, like the next okay. movie in France and yeah. in Paris, I think specifically. And um, my what I think will happen is that Newt's adventures will take him across the world because that's what it what they do. And then at the same time, each time he goes to a different place, he'll be he'll be seeing a different rise a different group a different type of people invested in what we're in the world's doing. Um, that's how mm-hmm. I envision them kind of wrapping it up like kind of tying so it together. Will get
5: more stereotypes start. about other cultures?
2: Right, right. Uh, yeah,
1: probably.
6: Uh, let's do the polls now, right? Yeah. So we're going to
4: watch populism <laughs> rise on the screen as it rises in, you know, the world in
2: real, I mean, yeah, in, in our time. Time.
6: I have to I have to say i'm I'm super glad the film wasn't made in early 2017 uh set with this political background to 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 what happened in the United States I'm glad the kind of the script was set you know nine months ago and so now you can suffer and enjoy your current political regime without joanne ruling's uh visual commentary you can still follow her twitter feed right and so i I'm, I'm kind of glad it's just brexit and and that like this uh, i mean canada has the last liberal leader in the world right and so the the this is and he's like a drama coach that happened to get the job so it's this is the you know you've got these political moments um, and those those aren't the things so, so yeah there's all kinds of concerns about how she defines america or how sh- we live with america as non americans but at least they're not brexit and at least they're not donald trump Right, or if it had been the other thing, whatever Hillary would have won. So at least it's not that. That's sealed in. That's momentary. But these other cultural questions, I think, will go. You know. I think that they should do, like Anna Green Gables, like in the third Fantastic Beast series reboot. I think that that would be a good time to loop in Anna Green Gables here in Prince Edward Island.
4: They go to Prince Edward yeah. Island and find some. Yeah. Yeah, we've
6: got it. Well, we have our own fairy culture, right? So there's the whole, kind of, some of the fairies that immigrated uh, with, uh, in Prince Edward Island in a different kind of way, so, yeah. So, I don't know if that will work or not. I doubt it. They never come here. I don't know. (laughs) That's right, fanfare. I'll I'll make my own CGI film. You know, it's going to have a lot of toilet paper tubes and stuff, though, so, yeah. Well, I'm at uh, 10.20 my time. I'm, I think I'm oh, going to yeah. uh, slip out. Uh, there's a suggestion of the course instead of getting sued, the course could be called Mythical Cartography and the Beast Living in Them. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and, uh, and and other yes to the fantasy maps. Someone asks, you know, when are when are we going to do you Neil know, Gaiman's American Gods? And I think yeah. that's a great that's a great that question. We've been so you got to stress- about that.
2: Uh, yeah, for, for the Myth
4: Guard Academy, for the free series yeah. that Corey does. We've been we've been I've been trying to get that in there. I've been voting for it read consistently the every book? time. Yeah, I'd probably read that it sure. read the yeah. book when it comes in. Yeah. Absolutely. So
6: I think I think Neil uh, Gaiman could be a great I think we're coming to the point where his work is substantial enough besides being genre defining and all those other interesting questions, the work that he does in the myth based material uh... is there's enough there with the Nancy boys and and the extra stories and and you can actually have a pretty focused course one of the problems is he's written so many different kinds of things to just do a course on him would be at the selection of but you could do one on his mythic material, his mythopoeic material mm-hmm. i think is has a pretty solid base there right So, yeah, no, I think that's kind of cool. Maybe you're the new Signum movie review team, (laughs) Uh, says Corita. I would do this again. But she's been, to be fair, Corita's been not mocking us through really the whole two hours, I think. So (laughs) just uh, just a warning. (laughs) And her husband, I think. Thank you for the mockery. (laughs) All right, well, good night, America. Are you guys going to keep talking? Do I need to designate another person or Mm. we're out of here?
4: I don't
3: okay. know. I, all right, I'm gonna sign. <laughs> off.
2: Yeah, I guess we're I think, I making we can, sense we after break.
6: nine p.m. Well, it was great. It was great to see you all. You're all just yeah, actually. You were all names in a uh, in in blogs and lists and stuff. So it's good to see you, kind of more visually. So.
4: Well,
6: thank you. Yes. Thanks everyone else for staying with us. Okay. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I know we still have, like yeah. twenty people. Yeah, guys yeah, like,
4: are it, hardcore.
3: This is, uh, I I can't
6: get this many shows for, you know, for for a real class, so this is cool. (laughs) 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 We'll see you later.
2: Good night, all.